VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, June the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I tell you, Brian Medora is not wrong. It's absolutely a day where you should indeed flick on your headlights, not only to brighten up the front of your vehicle, but of course to engage the running lights in the rear of your vehicle. The visibility is brutal. I heard someone say that the visibility this morning is 0.2 kilometers. So obviously it's socked in pretty tight here again in the city. Hopefully it's nicer and more bright where you are. All right, well, look at the Newfoundland Rogues. Finished off the regular season in the Basketball League on a really good run. Then they won a one-game play-in. Now they went on to play the first-place team in their division. That was the uh, Georgia Soul. Knocked them out. So they advanced to the conference final. They were down in Atlanta to pull off that feat over the weekend. Way to go to the Rogues. And I was watching, uh, or following, I guess, little para hockey at the uh, World Championships. And Canada lost again to the States, 6-1. So that's three straight for the Americans, our most bitter rival in para hockey. I am curious why Liam Hickey wasn't in the lineup. Uh, Flicked around a couple of notes to see if we can get some details. But, of course, Liam has been a stalwart on defense for Canada's para hockey team. But a silver medal will have to do. All right, sometimes I read these stories about people taking on just the most extraordinarily difficult human endeavors. And, you know, I'm amazed at people who run marathons, for instance. But let's say good morning and hello and congratulations to Carl Barrett. He's a member of a four-person team that uh, competed at the... Expedition Canada's Adventure Racing World Series qualifier late last month. It's a race of 580 kilometers. You get a week to do it. You sleep is optional. So there's trail running, mountain biking, paddling, orienteering, rappelling. And this four-person team had a real successful go at it. So the name of the team is Four Word Motion. Placed first out of the three teams in the Masters category. Tenth overall out of 20 teams from all age categories. Now, of course, this gentleman is... He's been involved with this type of distance running and racing for a long time. Two World Triathlon Championships, Chicago in 2015, Abu Dhabi in 2020. He's run five marathons, including Boston in 2021. But 580-kilometer race, what even drives people to do that? So bravo to uh, Carl and his four-person, four-man team. All right. And good morning, congratulations to the members of Team NL who competed at the 2023 Skills Canada National Competition in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So that's, of course, a technology, multi-trade, 550 competitors from right around the country, and we brought home nine medals. Bravo. Bronze medals went to Robert Swain and Sebastian Rivadeniera. Uh, Julia Rose, David Parsons, Leah Casey all won silver medals. Congratulations. Gold medals. Devin Owens, Alex Edwards, Udantha Shanratran, Shanratan, I apologize to that person and their butchering of their surname, and Jaylee Gillingham. Good stuff there. All right, where's that scribble? Okay, I've heard in the news, and I've seen with my own two eyes, if you take a trip down in the downtown core of St. John's, you know, it will be bustling with the pedestrian mall this summer, and of course, every tourist who makes their way to St. John's will spend some time in the downtown. And we have long had a graffiti problem, but it seems to be way out of hand. I don't think I've ever seen as much graffiti as we see these days. So I think people are right to say 
that it not only has a bit of an eyesore quality to it, but it does give the thought, or at least the perception, that there's a lot of neglect and a downtown core that is in decay. It's a problem. So the conversation goes on to, in some other cities in the country, they actually have dedicated teams to clean graffiti. You know, it's a big nuisance and a time-consuming and uh, financial burden for private businesses to clean the graffiti off of their business, their building. So I don't know what the right answer is. People will obviously say, well, if we crack down on the graffiti artists, then we would probably reduce the amount of graffiti, and part of their punishment would be cleaning up their own graffiti and others, regardless if they put the tag on the building or on the bridge or whatever the case may be. But it is a problem. So I wonder what you think. Inside the maintenance budget for the city, that's how they come upon cleaning up this graffiti. Of course, it's time-consuming regardless of who's doing it or regardless of who's fitting the bill, but it is a problem downtown. It really looks terrible. Some places obviously much worse than others, and graffiti is not just in capital cities in the, in the country. It's all over the place. So I don't know how bad it might be in certain communities. We have spoken to the mayor of Marystown about some of the graffiti and some of the kind of hateful stuff that's been sprayed onto city signs or town signs or what have you. But if you're in the city and you've seen that graffiti and think there's something better we should and could be doing about it, because something has to give. It just looks terrible. You know, in some places, in some cities, they actually have dedicated spaces so that folks who are inclined to break out the spray paint have a place to do it. And it is not on the main thoroughfares, and it's not in the middle of the downtown core, and it's not on every single random building along said Water Street and or Duckworth or down on Marine Drive. So anyway, graffiti problem is absolutely real. Today is World Environment Day. So I heard Brian Medora say the first tire recycling plant is opening today at 11 o'clock in CBS. I mean, forever, we were paying someone to take our tires. They'll be shredding, consequently recycling some half a million tires a year out of that facility. So that's a good thing. But on World Environment Day, in the recent past, I've seen so many news stories and read so many news stories about the way we treat the environment. You only get one shot to do it right, necessarily. So this year's motto is Generation Restoration. So talk about reducing or reusing or recycling. The big issue really does boil down to plastic. It's simply extraordinary. You've seen the pictures of some of the big swells of plastic that are consuming so many parts of the world's oceans. But it's making its way into the seabirds, nanoplastics, making its way into marine life, and consequently part of the food chain, and eventually makes it into me and makes it into you. I know people mock governments when they do things like uh, banish certain types of cutlery, plastic cutlery, and we've got these new things that kind of fall apart and straws and all the rest of it. But plastic is just, there's just too much plastic out there. There really, truly is. Now, there's obviously big issues that we can and will talk about. But when we know that plastic, whether it be with a single cucumber enveloped in plastic, or if you happen to open up an action figure or something at Christmas time, it's just extraordinary the amount of plastic you have to cut through to get at your Power Ranger or whatever the case may be. So on World Environment Day, I suppose there's opportunities to talk about it because there's a lot of impact, whether it be with business, our own individual behaviors, and protecting the environment. For some people, it couldn't care less. But it does become an issue, I think, that even if you're someone who thinks all of this talk is kind of malarkey or nonsense, if it's made it into the food chain, then there's a conversation to be had, don't you think? And then you contrast how some people are just willing to throw their plastic on the ground or flick it over the side of the gunnel into the ocean. And then things like the trail razor. Community hike happened over the weekend. 
And organizations like the East Coast Trail, which are doing such great work, not only to offer 336 kilometers worth of excellent hiking trails, of which I did a little bit over the weekend, not as part of the community hike because I'm a bit sluggish <laughs> or slow. So, you know, all these contrasts are real. And then other issues, like economic opportunities that are right in front of us regarding, say, for instance, wind, hydrogen, and ammonia, of which we're going to hear this month about what companies are going to move on in the second round. It really feels like at least one project thinks that they're getting the green light. If World Energy GH2 was acquired the Port of Stephenville, boy, they might know something we don't know, but that really feels like they're just waiting for a formal green light or approval from the provincial government. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to be this month that we find out about it. And then, of course, it's the province's long reliance on royalties, jobs, tax base in the oil business. And it's real, and it has been a big part of economic boost here. So I've been thinking a little bit about what went down at the Energy NL conference last week. Day one, come on. Day two, oh no. Day three, a little bit of a rebound and optimism, all surrounding the timing by Equinor to announce that they're putting the pause on Beta Nord for up to three years. So it went from, you know, we're going to be optimistic, and we heard from Equinor Canada. They're talking about, you know, just pressing the, the pause button and looking at the pricing and looking at a way to make it more manageable or affordable and get it right. Okay. Then you hear, you know, some of the comments from the Premier. I don't work for the company. I work for the people of the province. And then Minister Shame O'Regan had an infrastructure announcement last week, pretty much blasted Equinor, called their, t uh, their timing sadistic, based on, you know, all the optimism that was in the hotel regarding energy and the potential for energy projects. And when the air got sucked out of the room, Minister O'Regan thinks it's a sadistic move. Now, we have long heard whether it be from federal or provincial politicians and or leadership at Energy NL or other industry advocates, that they'll try to put, you know, the brave face on and say, well, you know, we'll work with the company and we'll remain optimistic and this project will get done to your sadistic. It made a lot of people feel like probably more information is being kept behind closed doors that this project might be dead. That's what some people are saying, you know, because we don't hear politicians talk like that. For some, it might be refreshing. For others, it might mean, well, Equinor, in private conversations, has maybe told somebody or everybody that's in the know or in the loop that three years and $16 billion, and the fact they've walked away from some project, they did invest significant monies off South America in an oil and gas play just a couple of months ago, but what does that mean for the future of the industry? It's going to be curious to watch it unfold. I mean, one of their partners in Beta Nord is BP. BP out there exploring now for in a field that could have an enormous, a significant find. People are talking about three to five billion barrels of oil. And we all know when compared and contrasted to Hibernia, which just last year uh, produced their one billionth barrel and what that's meant to the province. So I think there's a lot of, you know, there's going to be a lot of skepticism, maybe some cautious optimism, but that was a big development. I mean, a lot of people, I think, were ramping up thinking that this year, this calendar year, the final approval, negotiations on benefits, understanding Article 82 and the UN's uh, Convention of the Sea, that'll all be settled, and off we go. You know, when the break-even was at 35 bucks a barrel, and Equinor rightfully says it's a volatile market, but it's never going to be anything less volatile in the oil and gas business. Just look at what the Saudis did over the weekend. Unilaterally cut production. And look what that meant for the manipulation of the price of the barrel of oil. So... Anyway, a lot to it. And sticking with the winners and the losers, and sticking with the water, 
So today is week two of the salmon angling season. And there's lots of rules and regulations surrounding it. But there's also an international salmon forum taking place right now. Opens today uh, in Moncton, New Brunswick. The Atlantic Salmon Federation encouraging Canada to take a real lead role because the preservation of Atlantic salmon is becoming a bigger and bigger conversation. Just look at the rivers that they do a count on, and the salmon return numbers are way down, way down. So we're looking for someone from the Atlantic Salmon Federation who's not at that conference, or maybe if they are at that conference, and want to give us an idea exactly what's on the agenda and what they mean by Canada taking more of a leadership role. Six countries plus the, the EU are part of this group, uh, this group, so we'll see. All right, stick with water. So nobody needs to be told that it's been a pretty rocky start and a contentious spat over snow crab. So there has been some improvements in the market, apparently. The price is now two twenty-five a pound versus two twenty a pound. But the issues regarding, you know, for instance, Quincy Royal Greenland not buying crab from the under forty fleet. And I believe that picked up yesterday. They started to buy that crab. And to know that even though they're back on the water, still negotiating what trip limits will mean which is a problem for the harvester. Of course, if you're a processor, you're going to want as much crab coming in as you can really realistically handle per day, per week. So about 11% of the quota has been landed inside of 54,000 metric tons of snow crab. Also some changes about some of the tolerance for the size of crab. There's going to be a 30% penalty for the undersized crab if you do indeed bring it to shore. So, you know, many of them will see, identify the small crab and put it back in the water. No harm the snow crab and the, the strength of stock if it's given another year to grow. But if you want to take that on, let's go. All right, an interesting announcement late last week uh, from Minister Tom Osborne. Sometimes I'm confused by knowing that there were different, more efficient, better ways to do things, that it takes a crisis to rear its head. We're, we absolutely are in a healthcare crisis here, especially when we talk about things like registered nurses, access to family doctors, wait times, surgical backlogs, all the rest. But they changed some of the process to fast-track internationally trained nurses to get into the hospitals, into the clinics, into the long-term care facilities. So now we're told that by the end of the year, somewhere between 200 and 300 nurses from India will be on the job. But here's a couple of things. One of the changes is uh, a cost reduction for applicants, okay, and a reduction in the time required to complete an education assessment from over a year to as little as a month. So we cannot have people in the system who are not up to snuff, don't have the training and expertise and professionalism required, but if we are still paying attention to ensuring the right people are in these jobs, how did it go from over a year to a month? Like, what's being dropped? Are we... Le are we coming up and relaxing regulations to ensure that your education assessment meets Canadian and Newfoundland and Labrador standards? And if not, why did it take so long in the first place? So, I don't know, I don't get it. But here's an interesting one. The province focuses in on seven countries that represents about 85% of internationally trained nurses applying for work here. The United States, the United Kingdom, India, Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, and of course in Ireland. So those changes, okay, they're good. They're welcomed in some corners. Debbie Malloy, the Vice President of Human Resources for the province's new, new uh, health service, called it wonderful news. And it probably is. But I think the big question is, if it was going to be possible to reduce the time to get these internationally trained nurses on the floor, then why has it taken so long to change the way we do business? Anyway, in addition to that, I wonder, is there any sort of 
thought that if you get it right in long-term care and people who are occupying a hospital bed and belong in a long-term care facility will deal with things regarding work-life balance for nurses, will deal with things like clearing up the surgical backlog. If you get it right in long-term care, you can probably do a great job elsewhere. How are we doing out there this morning, David? A couple of quickies here. And maybe I shouldn't call this a quickie because it's extraordinarily important. I read a story this morning, and it's about a medical assistance in dying, made. You know, when the intention was, if there is no hope for your future, living in unbearable pain, and no cure, no solution, no respite to be found, some people may indeed choose to get medical assistance in dying. But it's not working the way it was supposed to. You know, we've heard stories where people who just need additional support, and when that support has not been offered or brought to bear, they've chosen to get medical assistance in their own death. That's not what it's for. And then we've heard terrible stories about Canadian Armed Forces veterans being offered this MAID program as opposed to some of the supports, whether it be through Veterans Affairs and or any other organization or any other, other level of government, because that's not what it's for. It never was supposed to be, but that's how it's being utilized. And it's just not good enough. The reason that the story resonated so much with me this morning is, unfortunately, I have a friend in Alberta, a woman around my age, who has now chosen it. But hers is, of course, because it's unbearable pain and what it means to her, and there is no hope for her future. It's dreadfully sad. And that's been an option taken, so it's been on my mind. And then I read this story where this Saskatoon artist uh, named Jeanette Loden, she actually allowed the CBC to come in and walk through the process with her. Just a man knowing yourself and for your family the day of your pending death. I mean, I know this is an emotional issue, traumatic issue to say the very least, but it does deserve conversation because it's not supposed to be for people. If they had the required supports in their own home or in a facility where they, their death is not imminent, but they think, oh, I have no other way out. I don't have the supports, and consequently I can't live like this. That's not why this policy or program was ever brought forward. So that's a big one, but you want to take it on? Let's go. Lots of emotional reaction in my email inbox over the weekend with the decision that the uh, government has made that there be no longer a requirement of a physical registration sticker to be placed on your license plate. Most of the provinces across the country don't have them. And if there's real-life update time for an RNC cruiser or the RCMP to check whether or not your car has appropriate registration in place, then why do we need a sticker for it, right? Anyway, so that's going away. Uh, B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, those provinces, no registration stickers. So I've long wondered why we even have those if there's no real need for them. Anyway, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a good one. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I have to put my head to the test here early this morning. So let's go to line number two and say good morning to the conservative member for Central Coast of Bays, Notre Dame. I'm pretty sure his name fits federal writing. He's the shadow minister for fisheries, oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard. That's Clifford Small. Good morning, Clifford. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Okay. I was just started a week going. So far, easing into it, but i got a funny feeling we're going to hit the ground running. What's on your mind this morning, Clifford? Well, Bain and Ord's on my mind. It's been on my mind for quite a while now. And, of course, uh, you know, it's been, everyone knows it's been uh, shelved for what looks to be three years. But many, uh, many are thinking that uh, it's, it's the end for that project, Patty. It could be. I mean, it's unusual to hear politicians, you know, kind of blasting companies for making these types of pause decisions. 
on a mega project, it's not uncommon to see things possibly have to be restructured when the prices are getting out of control. I'm not in the room. I don't know what exactly was discussed. But I think there was a, was a surprise. The timing is less than optimal. But I did m read a news release from your party about this and laying the blame squarely on the federal government. Why? Absolutely, Patty, because it seems like there's no way for an energy project like this to get going in, in this country. Uh, this, this one's just the latest uh, that the Liberals have killed through uh, reg uh, regulatory suffocation. I mean, we can we'll look at Tech Frontier. Uh, you know, they'll approve these projects, put so many conditions on, drag out the process, make it such a long process. And we're, we're competing globally for investment dollars from, from companies like Equinor uh, to come and invest in our harsh, very harsh environment. As compared to uh, jurisdictions like Brazil and Guyana or, or Trinidad, Tobago, where right now there's about six exploration wells being drilled. And operating between the tropics where trade winds are, are blowing and less than 15 knots all year, less than 100 miles offshore, take that and compare it to uh, an area like Baden Nord, which is 350 miles offshore, and... Uh, it's it's apples and oranges, you know. So, uh, but isn't that exactly the point? Is that you know this would have been Canada's first deep water well. Equinor, of course, have a track record of deep water exploration and production. If it was going to be an issue with the process, wouldn't they have withdrawn during the process, citing exactly that as opposed to some year later after it was given its recommended approval from the Impact Assessment Agency? and they've made this decision at this point. Just help me understand how you think a project that has been approved is to be blamed on the current government, given what we've heard from Equinor Canada or anybody else that has, is a so-called stakeholder. Well, the, it, it took nearly four years to get, the, to get it through its environmental assessment phase. So uh, if that had been less than two years, like you see in all the other jurisdictions in the world, we'd, we'd be two years ahead, two years left, less inflation. Okay, and we all know what's happened to the price of commodities in the last two, three years. So I think that's what gets us to this juncture is the fact that and, and I and I don't disbelieve Equinor's position on this, what they've said. Uh the fact is uh materials are very expensive. But if this had been approved in a timely manner, we we could see this project of having been sanctioned already by now and, and starting to be built. But if you're going to drag it out, drag it out, drag it out, throw 137 conditions uh, on a project, and you know these these companies they've they, they get their approval, but basically the, the approval is is something that they can't really deal with, and the process was so long. For example, uh, consultations with with uh, folks in the mouth of the St. Lawrence River about what the effect would be on their salmon rivers like it, this is this is unbelievable that's just one of the silly the silly things that that had to be that had to be studied as a part of this uh, there needs to be some sensibility and we need to we need to work faster and more efficiently because we are competing with other nations in the world, and there's lots of oil in uh, jurisdictions that approve faster. Uh, they care about their environment as well, 
and who who are operating in a in a much uh, uh, friendlier climate. Do you think that if the like for instance when uh, the gentleman representing Ecuador, Tor Loseth, I believe his name is, you know, asked if there was any sticky points, whether it be negotiations with the province on the benefits agreement, whether it be the uh, United Nations implications of Article 82 or anything else, do you think, because companies are not afraid to say that there's a problem here and here's what the government policy, whether it be federally, provincially, is doing to the potential for new projects to come to reality. But no mention of any of that. If it was indeed a process problem, are you surprised that the company didn't say exactly that? Because why wouldn't they? Well, the company's trying to maintain some kind of a decent relationship with the people who are in control, who are making the rules and who are, who are passing judgment on these projects. They're, they don't want to come out and slam the government publicly when they got to sit around a negotiating table with them. So you, you can, you can kind of see, if you're going to do business down the road, You've got to try to keep the relationship, at least in public, a little bit smooth. Now, we heard uh, Minister O'Regan say that the relationship between the federal government and Ecuador is strained. Well, obviously it's strained because look what we had to go through to get it to, get it to, the, uh, to, to the finish line and the approval process. I mean, I, I get it. I'm just a little surprised that the company, you don't have to blister the federal government to say, look, we have a regulatory process concern here. You know, because the industry was had no problem saying Bill 69 was a huge issue regarding the time frame for environmental assessments. So when they were willing to say that, I'd be surprised they wouldn't be willing to say this. And I don't know exactly what's going on here. You know, the they tell us that $16 billion is no longer an accurate number without providing any additional information on that front. So... Anyway, we'll see where it goes from here, but I have a sinking feeling that when people are willing to talk like this about companies, that this might be, there's more information out there than we've been told. That's my, that's my sneaky, my, that's my suspicion, pardon me. Oh, the de- definitely, definitely. But, you know, the positive thing here, there is still positive news coming out of the offshore. Uh, the Orphan Basin well is being drilled. And I think that the the drilling is going really smoothly, and I don't think they're all that far away from the reservoir. So I, we could hear some very positive news very shortly. And it's not to be all in the end all for off, for our offshore, because hopefully by the time by the time that uh, the the application goes in for the Orphan Basin project, there'll be a new government, a government that wants that wants energy projects to be developed. Petty, that Beta Nord project was slated to deliver $10 billion in royalties to Newfoundland Labrador. That's $333 million a year in a province like ours that has such a, a dire situation in its health care. We've got schools without teachers. We've got roads that need to be maintained. So, and, and it's only going to get worse. Our population is getting older. So we need royalties. And we need them badly. So hopefully as we go forward, uh, we change government and get this oil industry moving. Appreciate the time this morning, Clifford. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Clifford Small, Conservative Shadow Minister for Fisheries Oceans. Uh, let's take another one before we get to the break. Let's go to line number one. Marie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I want to bring up uh, this strike that's going on at uh, Tiffany Lane's and Kenny Pond. Uh, uh, private homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the thing that I want to bring to the public's attention 
is that um, you got someone coming down from away, uh, going into that particular home, those particular homes, and making calls on how it should be run. Now, from my understanding of it, uh, they have full-time workers in there. And what they're doing is they're trying to push out the full-time workers that uh, know their runnings. When you have full-time uh, workers, they know the protocol. They know the clients very well and because they're spending so much time with them. And it works for the client that's in those homes. Now you have a big shot that comes down from away, and they dictate, no, we're not going to have that system anymore. We're going to save money, and we're going to bring in just casual workers. Now, I know what, what it means, like, when you bring in casual workers. For one thing, they don't have the time put into the place, the private homes, to get to know these clients. And you know who suffers through all of this is these people that are in these private homes. They're paying to the hilt, and I mean paying to the hilt, uh, to be in these homes, to be looked after and cared for. And uh, they're not getting the service from these, com- from these private homes. Well, I mean, even the and full-time workers that have been in place in long-term care settings, personal care homes, they say they've been unable to do these so-called extras just to spend some time with the residents because, you know, whether it be to help someone with their hair or to help them with a puzzle or to talk with them about their family, the types of things that are part of a real well-rounded relationship between the professional, uh, the healthcare professional and the resident, they say at this point they haven't been able to do it. The news release from NAEP is really quite clear. It's a multifaceted problem that they have, including staffing issues and workloads. There's an issue about trying to be able to recruit and the consequently retain staff. They also talk about what I think is the biggest one here is the management style. They call it hostile. They say the work environment is toxic. So the information that you're giving us this morning, where's that coming from? Well, it's brutal. It's brutal. Uh, Where are you getting the information? Well, uh, I I know someone that that works in there. And uh, that's the issue that's in that building. It's in, in, in those homes, is that they're trying to uh, push out these full-time workers and bring in casual workers. And that's a failing system for these people that are in these homes that are paying to the hilt. That's a failing. That will not work. You need people in those homes that know these people, that spend time with these people, and know their needs. And w- what I find so sad is... You know, these people are in these homes, and they're crying out. They're even going out on the picket line with some of these workers because they know the problems that are in there, you know, that, uh, that they need these supports. You've got these workers in these buildings. They are the ones, these, these full-time workers, they're the ones that are running these buildings. It's not these top-notch people from away coming down and dictating how it should be run. They know the problems that are in the buildings. They're the ones that got the hands on. They're the ones that see what these people are going through. And it breaks their heart that they're going to be pushed to a breaking point where they're going to burn out. Because that's the scenario of all of this. You can't have workers in a building on burnout. 
And that's, and that's what they're doing to these workers. The, why don't they put enough people into – if they're going to haul people in out of the community and put them into these homes, make sure these private homes are run properly. You know, uh, they're, they're charging enough. They're charging enough to these, these people that are in there. So if they're charging them, they should have these things in place for them. You know, I find it appalling. Uh, that we are treating our seniors so poorly today in in the system that's out there. It should never be. It should never be. A person, a person. When you go into these homes, you're not just doing one time when you went in and done a job. You were given a job, uh, uh, a wasp name of what you were supposed to carry out in a run of a shift. You're carrying the weight of that building. You're in the kitchen. You're out helping the clients. You're in doing baths. You're, you're helping someone that's going, going down the, the aisle that needs assistance, and you're trying to make time for them. I mean, they don't have the proper procedures in place to, to look after these people, and, and they shouldn't be running these homes. They shouldn't be running these homes if they can't provide the care. I appreciate the time and the concern, Marie. Thank you for this. Okay, God bless. Take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to have another little chat about Beta Nord. And then I did mention there's an international salmon forum. Members of the Atlantic Salmon Federation are there. We're going to get an update as to what they think Canada's role is in leadership at this particular forum and what are some of the key items on this agenda. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Bob, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Patty. The decision to postpone the Bedenor project got uh, Ottawa written all over. Uh, excuse me for a minute. Yeah, you you put all the pieces together, postponing the ferry rates, uh, the team goes you a highway, and uh, it was only an afterthought at first, but now Seamus O'Regan has reiterated it, that's going to go ahead. It's all attempts to cushion the blow. And I'm sorry, it's all completing a highway that's been uh, waiting for completion for years is an attempt to do what, I'm sorry? Well, Patty, you're playing the devil's advocate now. I'm asking you a straight-up question, Bob. You can call it whatever you like. Well, what's a uh, cushion in the blow for what? For the announcement that uh, the Beta Nord project was going to be postponed. Well, we knew about the Team Gushu issue before the Beta Nord news. Yeah, but it was reiterated by Seamus O'Regan. Seamus O'Regan seems to be uh, Ottawa's ambassador to Newfoundland. Uh, him and Fury now, I don't know if you can blame him. He can't down the line. He's uh, his boss or the leader of the, the Liberals. So that would be the end of his career. But uh, who do we have? We just had uh, Clifford Small, was it? Uh, I guess That's right. he said it much better than I could say it. But uh, there don't seem to be any pushback by ordinary Newfoundlanders. And I don't think they got much respect for Newfoundland if they figure they can manipulate us that easy. Or maybe they don't care because it's seven seats uh, against uh, uh, re-election, you know, 
seven seats against the fees in Quebec and Alberta and, and Ontario. So even if they lose those, it's not the end of ours. You know, what do they gain, you know, if they appease Newfoundland and lose the election, right? Yeah. But again, where I'm struggling with this is Trudeau's fault is that the project was released. The Fed's role in this is over, and it has been for quite some time here. So if Mr. Small's point, if people will accept the fact that if it took two years too long, consequently two more years of escalated costs regarding inflation and uh, access to materials and global supply chains, fair enough. But at this moment in time, I'm not so sure how this is any level of government's fault. And now if the province was actively engaged in benefit agreement negotiations and that was a problem for the company, or if it was about demanding that the jobs, so many of the jobs for the top sides be done here, or for Equinor to shoulder some of the burden regarding Article 82 or those types of things, I get it. But neither side has said that that was an issue. So I'm just having a hard time understanding exactly how this is the Fed's problem or the Fed's fault when the Fed's role is over and long has been. Well, I... Uh, I I get the impression uh, with the CEO of Equinor announced that at the meeting. I get the impression <clears throat> that he, I could be imagining that, according to you, I am. But uh, he, he seemed to be angry, and I think he didn't want to be. He don't like being manipulated by Ottawa. Well, what did he say? That they they intended <coughs> to proceed with this, I believe. And Ottawa, that's the best Ottawa could do it. He couldn't cancel it outright, which they'd like to do, and they postponed it. But isn't this the pattern I've been talking about all along with uh, Newfoundland under the auspices of Ottawa? Newfoundlanders don't seem to get to get out on the road when you won't uh, fill their potholes or something, but... The big items that uh, that has been the history and the legacy of Newfoundland, the Upper Churchill, uh, now the Isle Play, uh, other provinces, uh, countries and provinces are, are are in a boom. They're making fortunes, and uh, you know how come we never seem to uh, be able to uh, get advantage. You know, all the things Ottawa's done to us with not doing anything about the offshore overfishing and destroying our fishery. And we just don't seem to be allowed to make any money or to get the benefit of our projects. Petty, and that's the way I feel. And if you don't, it took a long while to persuade you that Quebec was a boogeyman. I think you're even realizing, children, look how protective they are over their language. And what, they even want immigrants to learn French before they get in. Yeah, but what's that have to do with me, I'm sorry? Well, you tie it all together the way Newfoundland has been shafted over the years, at, uh, you know, when they came, when we're at odds with Quebec. You put all those things together, Patty, and that's our history here in Newfoundland. Yeah. Um, it, there's a couple of different things that are being all lumped into the one pile where I'm not sure that's how I view it or how it works. So we can at one time, at one uh, hand, say that things like the way they manipulate the map is absurd, all the while knowing that regardless if we like it or we hate Hydro-Quebec or we, have, uh, we distrust the province itself, the government and Hydro-Quebec, 
fact of the matter is, there's got to be something negotiated regarding the Upper Churchill. The fact is, there's got to be something negotiated and some sort of work relationship for mining in the Labrador Trough. This is not things about Quebec being the boogeyman or not. This is geography. I mean, we just can't pull up the Churchill River and move it to the island. We can't just pull up all the minerals and pretend that we don't share some uh, overlap uh, synergies with the province of Quebec. These are just realities that you have to deal with. So if we're going to say that we hate Quebec because of 1969 and that we don't trust you, so we let every other project go by the wayside, then we're just cutting off our nose to spite our face, aren't we? Yes, geography, uh, and I don't know how things are going to be ironed out. I realize the geography and but geography didn't uh, account for the corruption that went ahead when that uh, 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 upper church was being negotiated and uh, stuff that went on there and Ottawa wouldn't intercede. They, w- they won't go against Quebec. There's an awful lot of stuff you're missing, Patty, here, and you're doing uh, uh, Newfoundland a terrible injustice. Oh, for God's sake. What am I missing? Well, Fill us in. Hello? What am I missing, Bob? Fill us in. I mean, uh, there was corruption, that, uh, and, ta- and uh, one of the companies was uh, on the verge of bankruptcy, and, and uh, Quebec took advantage of that. There was, there was wrongdoing occurring with that project. And who has said any different? What? Have I ever said different? You haven't said, it, uh, you haven't said any different, but you haven't said it either. So uh, I, what I should be doing is talking about 1969. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt. You know, that the pattern is continuing, Patty. Okay, I mean, uh, don't you think that... Uh, where, where, where is this uh, deep-sea thing now with Bade and Ord? Is that within the... the you know, well, we got a 200-mile limit... And our uh, our continental shelf is 130 miles more further out. What are other countries doing in the world? Couldn't we extend our continental shelf, and then we wouldn't have a problem about who gets uh, royalties and everything? No, that's uh, you, ju- you can't arbitrarily just say, ah, no, no, no. Well, now that we found oil 500 kilometers offshore, we're just going to extend our nautical economic. Uh, uh, economic zone, and uh, nobody else can say anything about it. I don't think that's uh, available to anybody. Well, it's not even talked about that, is it? Do you think you're going to hear an awful lot from Newfoundlanders now about this situation? And this is the big; these are the big items. You think you're going to hear an awful lot from ordinary Newfoundlanders about this? I don't hear any pushback. Well, we heard it so last. So I don't mind. Uh, uh, Given us the shaft, they're not going to get any much push, but we're going to vote for them anyway. It seems like. Well, anyway, Patty, but that's my spiel. I hope I haven't offended too many people. No, you uh, and uh, just for your own information or clarification is uh, when you insult me, I don't care. That's fine by me. And if uh, there's something you think I'm missing, you're always welcome to call and uh, set me and or the record straight. Thanks for your time. Okay. Take care, Bob. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about Atlantic Salmon. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Executive Director of Communications for the Atlantic Salmon Federation. That's Neville Crabb. Good morning, Neville. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. 
Well, thank you for having me. I, I, I love the program. It's a very cool format, and y- you do excellent, so thank you. Uh, thank you for that, and uh, once again, welcome to the show. So I did mention that there's an international salmon forum taking place beginning today in Moncton, New Brunswick. Your organization is asking for Canada, as the host, to take a greater role in leadership. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, I mean, Canada and Norway are probably the countries in the world that have the most returning Atlantic salmon to home waters. But for years, frankly, uh, our federal government has been a laggard on the international community when it comes to addressing some of the most serious conservation concerns affecting Atlantic salmon. Uh, We have the benefit of hosting NASCO this year. That's the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization. And probably the best analogy to give is it's like the United Nations for salmon conservation. So you put a pin in the North Pole and draw an umbrella around all of those North Atlantic countries. Uh, They're all signatories to the NASCO Treaty. They're all present there. And we want Canada to to step up and and to be the rightful leaders that we can be when it comes to conserving and protecting wild Atlantic salmon. When we talk about uh, conservation, first, just to set the stage, let's look back at 2022 and what we saw for salmon return, especially large salmon in North North American rivers. North America-wide, great. Labrador, off the charts. The second-best year for large salmon returns since records were kept in 1971. Uh, Grill also up in Labrador. Island of Newfoundland, which are predominantly grills rivers. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. It was the only assessment region in North America where large salmon counts were were down. Um, things weren't great on the island of Newfoundland, but there's a lot there's a lot to work with there. I mean, you still have hundreds of, of very, very healthy rivers, um, places like the those rivers that all empty into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, you know, the, the big ones in Quebec and New Brunswick, the, the Cascopedia, the Matapedia, the Restigouche, the Miramichi, they're all up in terms of big salmon numbers. So we've got some, some positive momentum to work with, and, and now's the time for our federal government to, to live up to some of their commitments around conserving and restoring Atlantic salmon. And one thing I, I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of is that our federal government has committed to enacting and funding a wild Atlantic salmon conservation strategy. And this would be something commensurate to the Pacific salmon strategy, which was enacted and funded a few years ago to the tune of, I believe, 600 and $37 million. And, and our understanding is that strategy from the federal government for Atlantic salmon will be coming sometime in 2024. So hosting this NASCO meeting, having all of those countries from the North Atlantic present is a great time for the federal government to to step up and start building positive momentum towards the release of that big strategy. And then it's having your the signatures actually play the role they committed to when they sign on to any conservation strategy. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe when the country signed the agreement with Greenland, I think it's simple as the Greenland Salmon Conservation Agreement, is they didn't live up to their end of the bargain. Well, the, the Greenland Salmon Conservation Agreement is actually, it, it's a non-government initiative. Um, it's one that 
we've had uh, three periods over time where AFF, my organization, the Atlantic Salmon Federation, our partners in Iceland, the North Atlantic Salmon Fund, and the union, which represents all the salmon fishermen in Greenland, we've actually come to terms outside of the government realm. I mean, governments are constrained a lot in, in what they can do and what they can do in one place sets precedent elsewhere. So we've seen a niche there where we can come in and deal directly with the people who are fishing Atlantic salmon in Greenland. And we're currently in one of those agreement periods now. And what we've seen over time is every time that we've been able to strike an agreement with those fishermen in Greenland, we've seen North American-wide populations of Atlantic salmon increase. And we're in one of those increasing periods now. The latest agreement was signed in 2018. All of our big spawners, all of those big two sea winter, three sea winter fish, they all go to the west coast of Greenland to feed. And hey, we all recognize that like people anywhere, Greenlanders have a right to fish in their home waters. But when it comes to Atlantic salmon, there there are major conservation concerns because you've got fish from a thousand North American rivers that are going there. So, you know, you might be catching a salmon from the Con River just as likely as you're catching one from the Eagle River. So there's there's a disproportionate conservation effect in that fishery. Right now, things are going very well. Uh, we've built some good relationships with officials in the Greenland government. We have good relationships with fishermen. We're doing you know, some communications and education work on the ground, and we're starting to see the results of it, and it, it's pretty damn encouraging. Yeah, or it could come from the Penobscot River, I think is one of the rivers referred exactly. to yep. uh, in your release. Uh, couple, before we get to some uh, gaps in conservation, whether it be reporting with catches or otherwise, there's also genetic testing. And in this province, a lot of the concerns would be the interaction between the wild salmon and the farm salmon, but that's kind of a... That's a, a strange conversation to begin with, and, you know, we can get into that. But the result, I think, is 91% of the fish that went or underwent this genetic sampling, 91% were North American, North American of origin, and not European. What does that number mean? How should we absorb that? Well, that is, so every, every fall at Greenland, when Greenland commercial fishery is happening, and it, it, it happens between August 15th, and the point where regulators determine that they need to close the fishery in order to not exceed their um, total allowable catch. So every fall, there are scientists out there sampling those fish, and you, you can tell by running genetics on the samples the, the continent of origin and even right down to the river of origin. And last year in the sampling at Greenland, 91% of the fish that were caught in their fishery were of North American origin. And that gives us a lot of hope for 2023. You know, normally that number hovers somewhere between like 75, 81, 82%. So 91%. There are a lot of North American fish off Greenland last fall that are headed home to our rivers this year. So it, it's a sign of a strong cohort of fish. Neville, do you have the time for me to put you on hold for the news, come back, talk a little bit more about some of the gaps in conservation? Absolutely. Okay, let's do exactly that. Uh, Neville Crabb is the Executive Director of Communications for the Atlantic Salmon Federation. And as we know, no commercial salmon fishery here. There's actually no commercial salmon fishery in the United States. 
the salmon are under the Endangered Species Act. There is a very small quota at Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, but we'll also get into some conservation with Neville when we come back from the news. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go back to line number four and rejoin our conversation with Neville Crabb, who's the Executive Director for Co- of Communications for ASF. Neville, you're back on the air. How do you think? Happy to have you back on. Okay, so I'm not entirely sure where we left off because i got a lot of things going on here, but let's talk about where some of the gaps are, whether it be in reported catches or otherwise for further added or enhanced protection in conservation. Okay. Um, so re- reported catches, um, we remain at or near kind of the lowest levels ever in terms of the North American harvest of wild Atlantic salmon. And, and I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, fisheries for Atlantic salmon are not a primary conservation concern. And fisheries for Atlantic salmon are actually a driver of conservation activity because it's through fisheries that people are connecting to those fish, they're connecting to wild salmon, they're connecting to wild rivers, and it makes people actually care. I mean, from the Atlantic Salmon Conservation, Atlantic Salmon Federation's perspective, like conservation is the priority. And beyond that, you know, we value all people who fish. We sometimes get a bad rap in Newfoundland and Labrador for being a live release only organization. But they're just not digging deeper there and looking into what we're saying. We're a conservation organization. So, you know, that's, that's where we are in terms of, of harvest in, in North America, despite, you know, maybe some, some localized and river specific situations, it's not harvest. That's an issue. And so what is? Well, the, the biggest issue for all North American Atlantic salmon populations is mortality at sea. Um, previously, and when I say previously, I'm talking about like early 90s and before that, you would have seven, eight, nine percent of small leaving rivers coming back to spawn at least once as adults. And now in a lot of places, that number has dropped between one and three percent. So that's a huge numerical difference, and that has to do with changing conditions in the North Atlantic, uh, likely, well, certainly due to climate change. For us as an organization, as as ASF, you know, we, we all try to take responsibility for climate change, and we recognize it, but you know, a medium-sized Atlantic Canadian NGO, it's pretty tough for us to, to move the needle on that, so where we've started to focus is on freshwater productivity, because the difference between three percent of a hundred thousand smolt and three percent of three hundred thousand smolt is significant. So that that's where we're looking now is to try to reach back into the freshwater to improve and protect the habitat and to make our rivers as productive as possible for the future of wild Atlantic salmon, and we've we've launched a new freshwater program, Wild Salmon Watersheds, and we've got a great 
one of our three pilots in North America is on the Terra Nova River in Newfoundland, and it's just it's going awesome. We see Newfoundland and Labrador as you know the North American stronghold for wild Atlantic salmon, and we want to connect with people and and do the work that it takes to sustain the, the great traditions that are there in the province. It's it's awesome, frankly. Uh, two quick ones before I let you go, Neville. You know, yep. it's things that we can do or uh, things that you can advocate for versus the global cooperation, for instance, on uh, the heated yep. seas and what have you. Two that come to mind would be interaction of the wild salmon with the farmed salmon, and of course what that means for returns on Con River specifically, and also the River Guardian program. Because my harvest might not be the problem, and uh, at-sea mortality is a massive issue, but the numbers of River Guardians, the length of time they spend on the river during the salmon season. So let's start with Con River and those returns, because we've gone from like 6,000 salmon returns to, what, a couple of hundred a year? So talk about that, and then we'll move on to the River Guardians. Okay. So... That talking about Con River means talking about open net pen salmon aquaculture and aquaculture salmon and wild salmon don't mix and wild salmon lose every time. And the evidence of that is overwhelming and irrefutable. And it primarily comes through escapes where you have fish that escape all the time from those pens and they can interbreed with wild populations. And then you have the transfer of parasites and pathogens, sea lice being a big one. You know, we, we, we see massive die-offs in the industry in Newfoundland. And those, those cages are sited oftentimes in the estuary of wild salmon rivers. And the effects aren't contained to the cages. We, you know, we're not the big bad come from away people trying to um, malign a Newfoundland industry, we're trying to tell the truth. And the industry is very bad for wild fish and the environment. So there are choices for Newfoundland leaders to to make there. Um, what was the other one, Patty, beyond that? River Guardians. Because, you know, yeah. last year there was a minor extension given to the season. Yep. And it's a private contract that's left by the federal government. I think last year was to the tune of some $5 million. But the unfortunate reality is the, the numbers of Guardians can't cover the province's rivers. And the season extends well beyond when the Guardians, uh, the Guardians contract comes to an end. So that seems to me to be one place where we can talk about things like unreported catches and poaching and those types of issues. Yeah, well, I mean, unreported catches in Canada remain a, a serious issue. So last year, it was estimated that there were 18.4 tons, tons of wild Atlantic salmon that were caught through illegal and unreported fisheries. And that doesn't even include estimates from all regions because DFO has such a poor handle on the issue. So yeah, I mean, an increased investment in River Guardians would be wonderful. And then I think on the other side of that is in trying to engage some of those people who are participating in those illegal fisheries. Like, what are what are their motivations? I mean, I, I can't imagine it's incredibly lucrative. We don't have wild Atlantic salmon being served in restaurants or sold on the black market. It seems like mostly a kind of a, a spiteful domestic consumption thing. And, and where we have retention fisheries, like in Newfoundland, 
and Labrador, you know, why not participate in that and, and move forward and as stocks persist, advocate for an increase in the retention limit. But it's those illegal and unreported fisheries that hurt us all. Um, I mean, frankly, DFO is, is doing not enough on that. I think they're probably doing more in Newfoundland and Labrador than, than most other places. But we had instances that I witnessed last year here in New Brunswick of gill nets like strung across the main stem of the southwest Miramichi, which maybe aside from the Eagle River in Labrador has some of the most Atlantic salmon returning to it anywhere in, in North America. The, the poachers are being emboldened by a lack of presence on the water by DFO. For DFO, it's probably incredibly complicated to get even one more person on the water, but that the river, the river guard, guardian programs seem to be a great solution. Let's do it. Let's get people following the rules, and everybody will benefit in the long term. Really appreciate the time this morning. Neville, would you like to add anything else before we say goodbye? Well, uh, the season just opened on the island of Newfoundland, and it's coming soon on, on Labrador. And I would just say the Atlantic Salmon Federation values everybody who cares about Atlantic salmon. Thanks for your time, Neville. Good to have you on. Thank you. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Neville Crabb, Executive Director of Communications with the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Let's take a break. When we come back, Debbie's there to talk about PTSD. And then once a year, we have a chat with Ben Sparks about the upcoming Morrison Scholarship Application Portal. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number five. Good morning, Debbie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'd like to dramatically change the topic this morning. Uh, some may know that June is National PTSD Awareness Month. Uh, I think it's something that we need to create a lot of awareness about. I personally have something called complex PTSD. Is it okay if I explain the difference? Of course. Okay, PTSD, most people would be aware of uh, soldiers who've gone to war when they come back. Years ago, we used to call it <coughs> shell shock. Right. Um, for myself personally, I have complex PTSD, and basically, in a nutshell, uh, my mental illness comes from living a war at home, living in a violent home, and basically has the same effect on children's brains as the combat that soldiers endure when they go to war. So that's what I endured as a child. I am from Newfoundland. I lived on the East Coast, grew up on the East Coast, moved to Labrador, <clears throat> became very ill, um, became a counselor, became very ill, and was forced to return to back to, La back to Newfoundland and try to get well. It's been a struggle, but I'm getting there. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear because... You know, you're right. We absolutely did attach PTSD to just one segment of society, and that's uh, veterans returning from conflict. But right. whether it be the household that you grew up in or first responders or, you know, like, for instance, if I'm a paramedic or I'm a firefighter or yeah. regardless of your age or where you're from or your vocation, there's lots of trauma in this world that can indeed end up being post-traumatic post stress disorder for one person or another. Absolutely. 
Yes, exactly. And it's interesting that you mentioned the first responders, and, and that's so important because we, we end up well, – I was a counselor for 25 years, so one can only imagine the vicarious trauma that, that I have. And the paramedics, firefighters, police officers, all those frontline workers, they they endure that too. And, and often, sadly, it's not recognized and it's not dealt with. I know for me personally, I, I didn't deal with it properly, and I ended up uh, – not only the work that I did, but the uh, life that I lived prior to that and the trauma that I've endured my whole life, I ended up with complex PTSD. I just also want to touch a little bit because I also ended up with something called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Very little known about this illness, and when I developed it, it was uh, so foreign. Uh, my uh, a team of uh, medical professionals did not know what was wrong with me, so it took a lot of investigation to figure it out. So uh, it's it's something for me that goes hand in hand with have been uh, traumatized, abused my whole life, and my nervous system was so full of stress that the stress response would not release. My nervous system was just so full of it. It came out in the form of these seizures. So I've had to uh, get a tremendous amount of help to try to overcome it. But it, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. If I can sit down and write my autobiography, which was uh, extremely difficult to do, but also very empowering and very freeing, and I wanted to write it, and I want to talk about it now, uh, the topic to help people understand that there is hope. We, we can get well. Uh, but we need to make changes as well. And it's so sad. You know, I am, I'll soon be 65 years old. I grew up and I lived in the system in Ontario. I lived in foster care. I came back to Newfoundland when I was a teenager. The people that were supposed to protect me and take care of me in the system did not. And it's so sad because I look at the system, and this is over 50, 50, 5, 0, 50 years later, and the system is still so broken. And I see it personally day by day, and I have people, because I'm public and people know my story, I get a lot of people contact me. And the system is still so broken. Our children are not being protected as they need to be protected, so I can't preach that enough. We need to protect our children. We need to put systems in place and services in place for the people who have trauma and who need the help and our sadly our government has yes there's been a lot of work done and I when I was in my career practicing as a counselor I saw the work that was being done it's it's amazing and I personally have a wonderful team who helps me but I also hear the horror stories of people who have gone for help who have put on waiting list after waiting list and they just can't get the help they need so we really need to take a better look and do do better Absolutely, and we should do better, but add to that part of the conversation, there's no legal recourse. Uh, well, pardon me. There's legal recourse up to a certain amount of time after you've experienced whatever level of trauma. If it's a sexual issue, then, of course, there is no statute of limitations, but if it's physical, mental, emotional, there is, which yeah. is really not helpful either. Just, I, I, I want to get back into the workplace injury for a second. Mm -hmm. Do I remember correctly that just prior to the pandemic, the issue regarding presumptive coverage for PTSD in the workplace 
is part of the landscape in this province? I believe it is, isn't it? I, I think so. And again, I'm out of the loop uh, in those areas a little bit since I've become ill. But I do try to keep up as much as I can. But I, I do believe you're right. And, and that's, that's certainly a step forward. Um, I've never dealt with that or had to prove it. I do know that from my personal experience trying to get, you know, even insurance and things like that when you have a mental illness is extremely challenging. So, you know, I think that's a step forward. I just hope that the, the people and the services to help those of us that have trauma and have that illness, like I just remember sitting down trying to fill out my forms for long-term disability and for Canada Pension, and I was in tears. My brain doesn't work right when I'm ill, so we need people to help us do that sort of thing. So, yay, we're making progress, but we got to do more. Some 4 maybe 5% of Canadians have some form of PTSD, and it doesn't just manifest itself because you saw something traumatic today. It could take years after for it to actually happen, so it's obviously complex. And so if you had your druthers, and we're talking about you know, better doing this, making the system better for protection of children and what have you, where else are we seeing gaps that need to be plugged up regarding the diagnosis of and treatment of and options for people who do have PTSD? Um, I, from my, this is my personal experience. I know I lived in Labrador West uh, for 40 years, and I, I was very fortunate to have a team that that understood my illness and treated treated it. I couldn't have asked for any better. Um, I thought, and as, as many who live in Labrador think, uh, we don't have the services in Labrador that you do in Newfoundland. I came to Newfoundland and moved to the West Coast, and actually found that the That was quite the opposite. I tried to reach out to get the services that I needed. Uh, I was met with people who just were not uh, specialized. They weren't uh, trained well enough. You have to be specifically trained in trauma. It has to be trauma-informed, empathetic treatment. You know, the first counselor I went to on the West Coast wanted me to sit down and tell all of my trauma. Thank goodness I'm a counselor myself and I knew that that would be re-traumatizing and it just anyway I ended up going through the system and reporting this person and trying to make some changes because that's what I like to do. If I see that there's you know things that are missing uh, I like to try to reach out to those who are in the position to make the changes to try to uh, help us that need the help. So we need people better trained um, in, in terms of children Oh, my goodness. I still can't believe that the way, and I know that the system is broken. I know that we don't have enough workers in the system. I understand all that. And they're overloaded. We hear that all all the time. Uh, However, there needs to be uh, people put there who understand and understand the ramifications of, you know, leaving a child in an abusive situation. I mean, that's what happened to me. I was left in a home where I shouldn't have been, and there was Uh, professionals that came, saw the situation, but turned a blind eye. And sadly, it's still happening today. Debbie, I'm glad you made time for the show. Not that this is the be-all and end-all, but I... I thought there was a PTSD Awareness Day sometime late this month, 25th or 27th, but now Mm -hmm. there's officially a PTSD Awareness Month in the country? Yes. Okay. That's great. Thank you you for listening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm happy to do it. Speak again soon, Debbie. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Ben Sparks. Morning, Ben. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. I think it's an important conversation regarding access to scholarship monies, this time the Morrison Scholarship. And I think we've probably done this in the past, but I'm going to do it again. The scholarship was named for Catherine or Kate Morrison. Tell us about her, and then we'll move off into what the scholarship is for. 
Yeah, thanks, Patty. Um, that's that's my mother, um, Kate. Uh, she was a lawyer and um, spent a career doing various things, um, all all with the focus to helping her community and, and those less fortunate. Um, she was a big, passionate advocate for for social justice, and um, some of your listeners might might remember her or know her. Um, she was active in in politics and and all kinds of community organizations. Um, and so, yeah, so she passed uh, a couple of years ago now, but um, we set up the scholarship um, to to do something nice um, and to try and honor her legacy, but also to continue that that tradition uh, and um, give back a little bit to, to the community. Tell us about the scholarship itself and who should or could be eligible for. Yeah, so um, we're in our fourth year now, which is terrific, and I think we've uh, we've had this chat uh, four times now, Patty, which is just just great. Um, the the scholarship is it's worth three thousand um, dollars, and it's open to anybody going into post secondary uh, this coming fall. So um, the caveat there is, you know, mostly applicable to grade. 12 students um, uh, in the province uh, right now. But if you've taken a year off or a couple years off or you've gone into the workforce and you're going back to school, um, this is also open to you. Um, yeah, so you just you need to be uh, headed to a post-secondary institution. Um, you know, MUN or another university doesn't have to be in the province, um, but you have, to be, you have to have graduated from a high school in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, in order to apply. So does the, their hopes for post-secondary have to include public policy or politics or anything uh, specific? So we, we started out um, in our first couple of years with, with that kind of very strict um, caveat. Um, we've had a couple of really great applicants, you know, who are applying to be engineers or scientists um, who also um, are interested in politics and, and you know, civic education, uh, giving back to their community. So uh, we've relaxed that a little bit. If you can make the case that your studies, you know, maybe your studies aren't, aren't your focus, but you are active and passionate in the community, um, uh, you know, and, and care about um, improving the, the, the lives of others, uh, you know, in the province or, or wherever you live, um, uh, we're willing to, to take a look at that, so please don't be discouraged. Um, I would encourage everybody who has an interest in politics or public policy or governance or civic education or even law um, to take a look at the scholarship uh, and to apply and, and just make the case. We we certainly won't turn won't turn you away just because you uh, you want to go and you know pursue biology or something as well. It's because you can absolutely intertwine your love for chemistry as part of your community leadership. So I'm glad to hear that. Just because I knew you were coming on, Ben, I went and had a look back at some of the most recent scholars, whether it be Erica Evely, Rachel Hawko, and last year's recipient, Chloe Soper. What can you tell us about any any opportunity that the Scholarship Foundation has stayed in touch with these uh, scholars, what they're doing, and what the scholarship meant to them? Yeah, so so I don't want to speak too much for them, but I will say that they're all still involved. Um, they they they're part of the group that that helps me and and a few others run the scholarship. So um, there's obviously no obligation for that, but they've all been um, uh, very kind, uh, you know, in giving their time back uh, to the scholarship. Um, we have just fantastic recipients. I have to say, uh, every year we we've, we've received you know um, applications from really wonderful candidates across across the province and. You know, we don't have the capacity to, to help everybody who applies. We'd love to, but, um, you know, we're just trying to to make a, a big impact for as many people as we were, you know, financially able. Um, but all three of our, our scholarship recipients have been terrific. Um, uh, Erica is, is, uh, was the first that she's involved uh, uh, in uh, youth parliament and in the community at Munch. She'll be going into her last year this year, which is just crazy. 
Um, we've got uh, uh, Rachel Hawko, who's also involved in youth parliament and is pretty outspoken uh, and active uh, on campus. And then we've got Chloe, uh, who is in Ottawa, actually pursuing her studies uh, uh, at the University of Ottawa, and she's uh, already found herself a job uh, on Parliament Hill. So she's putting uh, putting her putting her studies to and, 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 and skills to good use already. And uh, all three of them are just terrific. And, and if you're listening out there, you or somebody you know could be number four. And, of course, uh, Rachel from a very small town, I think it was Roshun, she's doing a, a degree in political science. Then Erica and Chloe are both uh, looking at a law degree, focusing on human rights. So uh, very interesting and accomplished trio of past scholar winners. I know the website's an easy one to remember, simply morrisonscholarship.ca. I think you find all the information there, including the application. Yeah, that's right. Um, so applications are open until June the 20th, um, and we we have... Lots of great folks online. We're obviously on all of the social networks at Morrison Scholarship. If you just look us up, uh, help us spread the word. Um, you know, we've, we've also sent things to uh, all the high schools in the province. So uh, if you're a teacher out there or administrator or you just, you've just you got grandkids or kids who might be interested, um, please just help us spread the word. And uh, like you said, morrisonscholarship.ca, if you want to apply, learn more. Uh, if you want to support our work as well, you can you can visit us there. I appreciate the annual telephone call this morning, Ben. Good luck with it. Thank you very much, Patty. Cheers. Bye-bye. There you go. Ben Sparks, the Morrison Scholarship, uh, named after his mother, Kate. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking healthcare, and Muskrat Falls, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for uh, Topsail Paradise. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Best client. How about you? No, I'm doing number one. Thanks Good. for the uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. No problem. Um, I, I wanted to call in because uh, I had asked some questions uh, the last week in the House of Assembly, and of course the House is closed, unfortunately. Uh, and I raised issues around the alleged uh, eye injection dose splitting, which which is a relatively serious issue. And, you know, I ask these questions as uh, trying to confirm or, or at least uh, address these uh, troubling allegations and, and, of course, to try and ensure residents of the province that they uh, they have some assurance that the injections they're receiving are safe and uh, and not compromising them in any way. Let, let's just set yeah. the stage because not everyone yeah. maybe knows what this story is, yeah. and it's remarkable. Yeah. So there's two particular uh Injectable doses, Ilea and Lucentis. Yes. So they're used to treat uh, what's called age-related macular degeneration, the leading cause of irreversible, irreversible vision loss. The issue here is that the vials are single-use. And there was, I guess, there was a, a pharmacist with some 30-odd years' experience who was talking about this as long ago as 2015, that there are, these doses are being sent in and they're, I guess, doubled up or whatever the case may be. So people are not disposing of the vial after their single use, and the overflow is part of the actual packaging. So this goes all the way back to some pharmacy that's no longer around in Ontario. The province actually was in a procurement process trying to find ways to cover some of these costs to find whether it be bulk buying or something. Eventually that fell apart. Yeah. But what's the status today? Because that, that kind of came out of nowhere, even though apparently they've been talking about it since 2015. Yeah, it, it's a, you know it's a really troubling issue, really, when you think about it, and amazing in some respects. And you know, trying to get some uh, sense of uh, uh, 
comfort from the minister on this for those who are receiving these injections. I mean, I'll give Minister Osborne, he, he did answer the questions, and, and he did speak to the fact that no, I think he said, we're not aware of any dose split happening in the, in the province nor being shipped into the province. Uh, but he also talked about a, uh, an investigation that was done a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2017. And, you know, since I went on uh, asked these questions and I also put out a press release on it, I did get some calls. I, in fact, uh, Ken Dix, the pharmacist that I, I think you talk about, uh, had called me and we had a chat and I obtained some information that he received through ATIP. And, you know, when I look at it, uh, at it. And uh, of course, everything, anything you, re you request for ATIP, uh, <clears throat> when it comes in, most of the information in it is redacted. And I can understand that. You know, they talk about protecting the privacy and, uh, and that of the uh, third parties to this. But when I look at the, uh, the questionnaires and the like that were sent out uh, for this review, uh, so we have them. There are all the, all the contact information, all the identifier information, all that's uh, redacted, and there's no issue with that. But when they ask, they have about eight questions they ask on this, and every response is redacted. And this is what sends up a bit of a red flag for me. You know, if the, if there was no evidence, if there was no proof, then I don't understand the reason for for. Uh, redacting some of the responses. And some of these are pretty straightforward questions. You know, for example, have have you ever had concerns regarding sterility of a product received? Yes or no? You know, how uh, are tamper, rece tamper seals intact at the time the, problem, the product's received? Yes or no? Would you have any concerns if the product was split into a single-use syringes by someone other than the manufacturer? So all the, those are some of the questions that are, that are blocked out. Uh, and that gives me some concern. When you when you look at this issue, uh, you know, was the was the review that was conducted was it in depth enough to to be able to say without a doubt that uh, you know everything's okay? Now I will say that the minister did did say you know he's gonna he's asked the department to carry out another review, and in his words, to be absolutely certain that this is not happening in the province. And that's a good thing, and I really look forward to seeing the results of that. And, uh, and, and that's the main reason for me bringing this to your attention, bringing it online, and is because where the house closed, uh, I didn't have the opportunity to follow up with any other questions on this to, to get a better understanding. And I just want to make sure that the minister is uh, going to carry out this uh, added review sooner rather than later, so that we are absolutely certain that these uh, these uh, eye injections that people are receiving are uh, are you know health uh, are safe for them. Uh, absolutely. Now, even though the access to information documentation was heavily redacted, still absolutely confirmed that dose splitting uh, products were coming to the province, which contravenes Canada's Food and Drugs Act. The manufacturer itself, Bayer, has says that they don't allow that. Period. But yeah. then it's, there's a couple of gaps in the story which I was trying to understand. Yeah. So this one pharmacy in Ontario that was sending these products to us, they were shuttered in 2019. No one can reach any of them. But we're still absolutely getting these drugs, ILA and Lucentis, coming to the province. Do we know where they're coming from today? Not that I'm aware of. I wouldn't be aware of that. That's probably a question to, to be asked to, to the minister responsible. Uh, again, you know, he's, he's told us in no uncertain ways in, in the House that there's no, he's not aware 
of it happening in the province nor being shipped to the province. So I can take him on his word there. But, you know, when you, when you hear others talk about it, then you kind of start to think, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, and it's a serious issue. So I'm hoping that when the minister does carry out this uh, added review, uh, that, it, that it addresses that. And, you know, to be safe, uh, you know, p- patients themselves, when they're getting this treatment, those are, those are questions they should, they should ask. They should ask their, their provider, you know, uh, about the injections they're getting uh, just to be 110% safe on this. Yeah, I can't remember what the recommendations were in this particular news article about mm-hmm. how people can protect themselves when they go to the pharmacy to get these drugs. I wish I could remember because that's an yeah. important part of this conversation. Uh, yeah. It's called a pharmacy record, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so if you are a patient receiving or using one of these two drugs in particular, injectable doses of uh, Ilea and Lucentis, you ask the pharmacist for what they call a pharmacy record right. for some additional protection for you. Yeah, okay. and I understand. I, I understand from some that uh, even if you're covered by insurance, even your insurance record would would indicate it as well, right? Okay. So, so there are there are ways to ensure that uh, what you're getting is you're getting it as per the manufacturer's guidelines, safety guidelines, and that. So, so that's something to to be asking to you know, it's like buyer beware. You know, ask those questions. Uh, but it is a serious issue. I mean, we're in a province where we are the oldest population in the country. Macular degeneration is an age-related uh, ailment. You know, it's affecting your eyesight. And uh, really, we need to be insure, assured that uh, what we're getting is safe and doesn't compromise us in any way. You know, there were, were concerns in those articles, as you said, you know, if you're dose splitting and you're use, utilizing that vial more than once, you know, there's, there's chances potentially of infection. And then if the vial is not stored at the proper temperature, then that, that results in, you know, degeneration of the, uh, the, uh, the drug. So, I mean, and again, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm taking this from, from uh, the media that's been out there. But, but the point is, there are concerns when, when a single-use drug is being utilized more than once. Yeah, well, there's been uh, there's been instances where pharmacists have been fined in other provinces for doing things like this. So uh, I have a contact at Panel who I'm going to see if they can provide me some information about where those two particular drugs are coming from now. If that one pharmacy in Ontario is no longer with us, so I appreciate you bringing it up, Paula, because I've been yeah. trying to fill in some of the gaps in this story, but it is a uh, it's a huge one because this age-related macular degeneration, it's irreversible. That's correct. So we can't get it wrong with the drugs that are being prescribed. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, the, the last thing I can say on this is we'll continue to ask questions. That's my job. And and, and try to ensure that uh, what uh, residents are getting is safe and not compromised. And, uh, you know, the best way right now, until we see the results or see more information from, from what the minister is going to do in that review, then the best uh, advice I can give uh, those out there is ask the questions. Ask the questions when you're gone in for your injection and make sure it's, uh, you know, it's uh, safe. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. Patty. You're welcome, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Paul Din, the, C, uh, the PC member for Topsail Paradise. All right, let's take a break. John, appreciate your patience. He wants to talk about the hydrodevelopment on the Churchill River, Muskrat Falls. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. John, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Okay, how about you? Good, good, good as could be. Um, 
But one thing I want to say this morning, we went uh, and watched Lab Cup there, the soccer uh, in Capital Valley Gulf, it's called Lab Cup, and we had a team came in from Newfoundland, uh, Steamville. My God, that was one awesome, awesome, awesome team that came in from there. By first time ever, a team from Newfoundland came and played in that Lab Cup, which, you know, which was tremendous, tremendous for us. But uh, my thing about this uh, Muscrap Halls and uh, Mud Lake, fiasco again um, uh, when this flood happened after this flood happened now they had uh, there's some people or some people sold their houses in, in uh, Mud Lake okay and some uh, people that sold their house got I mean, got a, quite, quite, a, uh, quite a bit of money for what they uh, sold the house for now the people who staying in their house up there now, they don't have to move. They do not have to move. No. They get, they get, uh, no, and they don't get their electricity, electricity cut off. Now, they, the pre- people who sold that house got exactly the same amount as what the other people is getting. Say they, for instance, $250,000, they got that, plus they sold the house. Now, there's another, that's this, 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 uh, good, me, I think this is good, because this means God help them people who got this. But there's another thing about it that happened, that there's another lady that sold her house, another, I'm, I'm sorry, another person that sold a house, and this guy who bought their house, just moved in there and everything, they're going to cut the electricity to this house. The same scenario. But a different, uh, a different aspect of it, because the thing is, one is allowed to keep electricity, the other one's not. So the, go- the government of Newfoundland Labrador is going to cut off their electricity. It's a fiasco what's going on up there. It's it totally, totally, as far as I'm concerned, totally legal, in my view. I don't even know if the premier knows what's going on, but this so just hold on a second, John. So they are selectively mm-hmm. allowing power to flow to certain homes and not to others. Because if the power is coming to the community, then what are they doing? They're just physically taking away the wiring and the box yep. from a house? They're, take, they're taking off the meters of the house and everything. Now, this, see, see, the thing about it is just one person that sold a house first. Got to, these guys are allowed to stay there. They haven't got to move. I mean, they're not like in a... a these people have, have done this relocation. They're, they're coming up with a relocation package. Okay, the people got out, they moved out before even this relocation package came to be and uh, <clears throat> sold the house to somebody who's from outside. I don't know if it's from Ontario, uh, uh, B.C., or whatever. They sold the house to them. Now, them people are allowed to stay there. They're allowed to stay there. They're, 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 they're allowed to keep their electricity, but another person down the road from him done the same thing. He bought a house from uh, he bought a house from this lady or this person that sold it to him. He's not allowed to keep the electricity. They're going to cut it off. I mean, it's a fiasco. Like I'm saying, I don't even know if the premier knows what's going on about this. And, you know, only Labrador, yes, they're saying only Labrador. But it's happening, and it's got to stop happening. What's going on? It's a fiasco. It's criminal, sorry, and I'd like to get a criminal investigation done <laughs> on what's going on. But I even went to their champion, their champion. It says, no, they can't do nothing about it. So, no, well, they 
can, I suppose, but they won't because uh, I'm not sure what the, political. I'm not sure what the RCMP could do about it, but like I'm not even, maybe I'm just confused, and that's quite likely. I'm not even sure where the logic is here. So if there's someone willing to not accept relocation dollars, wants to live in Mud Lake, has a house in Mud Lake, and the power yes. is running to Mud Lake, but they're going to cut off yes. the power because what? Because you, it could be all kinds of liability issues, but the government can do all kinds of stuff to protect themselves. I mean, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador actually got backed out of the lawsuit when they, the lawsuit when they appealed. They're not even being, uh, they're not specifically named in this class. So I don't even know where the logic is to say, okay, well, power for you and none for you. I don't even know where to start with that. I know, I know. That's what you said. So, so I'm ungrateful. I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's unreal. It's unreal what exactly what they're doing. And, and like I'm telling, I'm, I'm saying, I don't even think the premier knows what's going on with this here. And I'd like to hear from him to to, to, to tell us what's going on. They won't deal with us uh, like our class action to to Wagner's and all that. They won't deal with us. Uh, well, it's Nelcor because the thing is, well, it's not Nelcor. It's Newfoundland Labrador. I don't know. But the thing is, is what they're doing with the people in Mud Lake right now, it's unreal. It's just, just unreal. They're going to cut the power to different buildings. And the government's going to do this now. The government's cutting out buildings and cutting out power because they give, the, they give people the money. But what I don't understand is why uh, one sold his house, sold their house, and the people who's living there is allowed to stay there. And allowed to keep and, and, and allowed to keep the power, and the next one down the road is not allowed to do it. Yeah, and we did follow up, but I can't remember who we were speaking with. Maybe it was you, John, but we actually had uh, the lawyer representing the class on the program to talk about where we are, what needs to be done, what legal ramifications are available, and all the different moving parts. So, this one about selecting which home can get power, which can't. Maybe I'm missing something very obvious here about where the logic lies, but we can absolutely follow up Newfoundland Labrador Hydro because they'd be the ones ultimately making that decision. And I have no earthly idea if any of the members in Labrador know anything about this or the premier or the minister responsible for energy because this one is just a little... Well, maybe it's just over my head because I'm missing something because I can't make heads or tails of it, but I will follow up on it. Oh, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, the, if I, somebody's got to follow up on it because the thing is, thing is, it's just not right what's going on. You know, like... <laughs> To me, I'm, I'm 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 across on this side, and I had all thought. I never they never even, they don't even talk to me no more. I don't know why, but they don't. Um, because I went to the lawyer probably. But the one thing is, if this is a fiasco, it's it's got to be done. It's got to be dealt with. I mean, you know, one way or another, it's got to be dealt with. What's good for one should be good for the other. But yeah, it's not. I suppose they're, 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 it feels they make, they make our MHA here, our MHA or or, or minister. He's not doing absolutely nothing for us. I know his wife is in the hospital or, or she's, she's, she's sick and everything, but they're going, he's still not doing nothing for us. Not a thing at all. He washes hands. Apparently, what I'm hearing from other people across the river, I shouldn't be saying that, but anyway, but people are saying, he's saying, well, I'm washing my hands from you guys. I mean, letting somebody else deal with it now. Well, I mean, you know, what, what, hold on. What point MHA say that? 
I, I don't know. Say that again? I, I don't know why anyone would say that. But, I mean, if this, if government simply wants this community relocated, period, because I know what, there was about 35 people living there when the flood happened back a number of years ago, I think in 2017. So if that's it, say, yeah. say it out loud. And tell us exactly what government monies are being spent for any type of transportation provision of power, because if the power's already flowing, then people are paying their bills, unless there's associated upkeep and preventative maintenance on the lines. Okay, but what else is actually, uh, where does government benefit if the relocation happens the way it does. I mean, if they said it didn't have to go through the vote process, it didn't have to go through the 20-year measure of whether or not you could save $10 million, it was just straight up, here's $270,000, take it and leave. And I suppose that's what they want, is for everyone to have taken it, for this class to have never happened. But if you're just simply saying, people, uh, we cannot service Mud Lake any longer in the future, then say it out loud. That's right, that's right, and yeah, they're not going to future. They say, yeah, say it out loud, say, and, and tell us straight to the detail what they're going to do. I mean, you know, why, why is other people allowed to stay there uh, in Monday uh, with power, and other people staying in Monday with no power? Yeah, it no, doesn't make no sense. I get it, John. I'll follow up on that part. i got to get off to the news, but thanks for telling me about this strange one. Listen, I'll, 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 I'll keep abreast with you and everything on it, too, because I'd like to hear what's going on, too, tell you, too. Thank you very much, sir, for your day. I appreciate yours, John. Thanks. All right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, if this is simply we want to relocate everyone from Mud Lake, okay, if that's the thought. But if it's, what, are we going to starve people out or freeze them out? So I have a place. The power runs to the home. There's a meter on the home, and you won't sell me power because... You just want me to leave? Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Junior, you're on the air. Patrick, how are you today? I'm okay, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Happy Monday to you and David. Same to you. I wasn't going to call in this morning, Patty. I was doing my vegetable garden. And I heard uh, the Atlantic Salmon Federation on, and they were talking conservation of the wild Atlantic salmon. Of course, you know our group is for banning, catch and release of the wild Atlantic salmon. And he's talking about conservation. Now, they are the greatest conservation group in the world, as far as I'm concerned, the Atlantic Salmon Federation is. But, Patty, conservation means not killing or harming any creature for pleasure. And catch and release is killing salmon for pleasure. And we know it, DFO know it, and we are probably the only province in Canada right now that still are allowed to retain the wild Atlantic salmon. And if people want to catch and release, Patty, they can cut the shank off their hook and hook their salmon if that's what they want to do and get a jump and it's gone, there's no damage done to the salmon. But uh, we have no definition of catch and release in, uh, in Canada. Uh, and uh, so, and DFO knows that the mortality rate on salmon increases after 18 degrees. The government of Newfoundland and DFO has asked people to stop catch releasing after 18 degrees, yeah. and 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 they should shut the rivers at 22 degrees, Patty, because the mortality rate is just sky high. But don't we do that? Uh, don't we, we shut down stop. rivers, whether it be our water levels that are too low and/or temperature? Most definitely, Patty, we do. But sometimes we don't shut them down at 22 degrees. I was up at the uh, uh, Irma uh, four years ago, and the water temperature was 24 degrees. And we were still fishing. 
because no one knew. There was no announcement made. But now I think maybe DFO uh, are shutting rivers for low low water. Yes, most definitely. But uh, the big rivers, they're still open at 22 degrees. And what they're telling us now, Patty, is that you can fish from uh, uh, from uh, daylight till 10 o'clock. Those rivers at 22 degrees are not dropping back to uh, uh, 18 degrees overnight. So we have a mortality rate at 18 degrees, uh, uh, up to 18 degrees, a very low mortality rate. Cold water, uh, the mortality rate is low. But after 18, then we should stop it, and it should be uh, it should be stopped, and the rivers should be closed at 22. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's even inside government's own guidelines here about do not. Uh, practice intentional hook and release uh, in those temperatures. Then they go on to talk about you shouldn't take the salmon from the water. They talk about, you know, don't handle it unless absolutely necessary. Use wet, bare wet hands or some sort of knotted rubber net, uh, those types of things. But, yeah. Uh, but Neville Crabb from ASF was talking about the harvest isn't the problem. The problem is returns based on sea temperature and the like, Right. Patty, we would have more returns if we stopped catch and release, but the Atlantic Salmon Federation has never advocated to stop that. They advocate for conservation, but the death, the mortality, the death of one salmon through human pleasure or any creature through human pleasure is not conservation. Bottom line. Yeah. So what do you use for a mortality rate inside a catch and release? Uh, and it does uh, fluctuate with the water temperature. We'll we'll get that out of the way because we know that's true. So what are you using? The numbers that people generally throw around is in and around 8%. Uh, if you go on the government website, they, uh, with Jerry Burns, when he was Minister of Fisheries, God bless him, he did a three-year study on catch and release. They used a very calm river to do it on, not like the Gander or the Exploits or anything up in Labrador. And the mortality rate was low, 5 or 6%, while the temperatures were like 14, 15, 16. When it hit 18 degrees, that's when the mortality rate started climbing. And anything over 18, Patty, we're looking at every one degree over, you can add 10% to your mortality rate. Okay. And that's, and that's a lot. Well, yes, it is. I mean, if we're if now we're talking eighteen to twenty percent, that is a lot, of course. Yes, it is. Yes, and DFO know that mortality rate really climbs as high as that, and you can get get anybody from DFO to any scientists and get them to call back because on that river, the uh, Western Brook or Bottom Brook over on the west coast, uh, when they did the catch and release over there, the salmon were surviving in the cold water temperatures. Well, Patty, there was a study done on the West Coast, five rivers over there, I think, done by the Bay St. George Group. They stopped, they managed to get DFO to ban catch and release on their rivers over there. And their salmon came back 100%. They passed that study in the DFO. DFO was not kicking that around very much. I guarantee you, they got that hit away. There was another uh, study done on the Gander River 15, 18 years ago when they were uh, studying the salmon coming back to their fence, the dead salmon. And a lot of those salmon had broken air bladders. And uh, nobody knows when they release the salmon whether that air bladder is broken. If that air bladder is broken, that's the dead salmon. So every salmon that's released, uh, every salmon, anybody who's caught and released the salmon, when they let that salmon go, man, your heart feels good because that salmon swam away. That salmon can live up to 30 days. And the study 
though my Jerry Burns proved that that salmon can live 30 days. They just fall back and fall back and fall back. That's why we don't see hundreds of dead ones floating around, because they fall back until they die or picked off by predators, the eels or gansers or the eagles. So here we go. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, Junior. Patrick, I appreciate you to give me the time because you are the government right here. Right <laughs> I'm and so glad I'm not. And 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 I'm over that. And uh, I can write all the letters I want to to the papers, but I'm getting more out there through uh, your program. And I thank you very much. And I thank David for giving me the time and slotting me in there. So you guys have a great day. You too. All the best, Junior. Thanks, buddy. Uh, you're welcome. Bye bye. Yeah. Next time we talk with ASF, we'll go down the catch and release. I mean, sometimes, if it's done right, I mean, that's, I think, the argument people make is that if you do it properly, then you reduce mortality issues. If you're just hauling the salmon out of the water for a bunch of photographs, you play it forever knowing that full well that salmon's going to have a hard time surviving, then there's, I think, a, a couple of different factors that blend in there, including the water temperature. All right, let's go to line number one. Margo, you're on the air. Well, thank you for taking my call, Patty Daly. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How about you? Good, thank you. We're currently, uh, myself and Nick are down at the uh, largest liquor store on Mount Cashel Road. Uh, Kiefer Sullivan has just released a new product, a uh, Canadian whiskey, and of course, you know, he's an Atlantic Canadian by birth, and it's called Red Bank, and it's processed in Nova Scotia. So Kiefer himself is going to be here at the store from 1 to 3, and the people are lining up, but uh, hopefully you'll get down and, and uh, get in line as well and meet Keeper. So he's here today? He's here today from 1 to 3. And uh, as I said, the lineup has started, and what they suggest you do is purchase the liquor and then keep your receipt because they're expecting a lot of people, of course. But, uh, you know, I, it was Nick who called and told me, so I said, oh, of course, I want to go down and meet Keeper Sullivan. Well, I ran into him one day on uh, Duckworth Street. Didn't say yeah, anything to yeah. him. I, I didn't, you know, yeah. didn't feel like being yeah. part of his day. But yeah, I just happened to walk right by. I'm like, wow, that's Keith wow. from Sutherland. Yeah. yeah. So we we've had a couple examples of this in the recent past. George Saint Pierre, the uh, mar- mixed martial arts fighter, they had lineups right. around a block when he was here launching wow. his vodka. Uh, yeah. Someone told me yeah. they think that Gretzky might be coming because Gretzky's got a new really? uh, vodka on the shelves as well. But I mean, oh, I didn't anyway. know. But yeah. Keith Sutherland, fair enough. He seems like a nice man. Yeah, he certainly does, and as I said, uh, one to three. So I wanted to let my fellow Newfoundlander and Labradorians and any visitors who are in the area that they are welcome to drop by and uh, take advantage of this rare opportunity. And I'd love to see you down here, too. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Uh, Margo, appreciate the heads up. All right, honey. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Patty. Yeah, yeah I... I didn't know that Georges St. Pierre was coming, but when I was told, and one of my boys who watches some of that stuff went over, and this was at Howley Estates liquor store there, the lineup was out the door. People were uh, taking an exorbitant amount of time to even get in the door to buy a bottle and get a picture taken with, I guess, what general consensus is one of the finest MMA fighters of all time, right? St. Pierre. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, There's a discussion that we've had in the recent past about body safety training. There's going to be still controversy about age-appropriate stuff regarding sexual education, and that's something we can talk about if you're into it. But this body safety program, it's in schools elsewhere. It's been test-driven regarding age-appropriate issues, and it's not about talking about sex. It's talking about acknowledging and uh, knowing or understanding the signs, the risks, the red flags. 
and how children should handle when they see and what they should do about it. We'll talk about that, and then we're going to talk about somewhere where you can get a tasty bite to eat, all in an effort to raise some money for St. Andrew's Church. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Patty, I had uh, two uh, quick subjects I just wanted to bring up. Uh, the first one you mentioned before going to break. Uh, I, I just want to throw my support behind uh, Bev Moore Davis and uh, and Connie Pike and their quest to, uh, you know, to try to introduce uh, some body safety, uh, age-appropriate body safety, of course, into the curriculum. Uh, it's being done apparently in every other province in the country except Newfoundland and Labrador. Not sure why um, we've been hesitant here uh, to introduce it uh, if it's been proven to... Uh, you know, if it's been test-driven uh, and, and, it, and it works. Um, you know, we've heard of some pretty horrific stories over the years coming out of this province uh, involving very young children. Uh, one comes to mind, I think it was Conception Bay, uh, Conception Bay North there a few years ago, and it was like a house of horrors. I can, I can recall reading about it, and it was just shocking. It's pretty sad if a child is afraid to go home because they don't know what they're going to have to face when they get there. So if we can put tools in place in an age-appropriate way so that, um, you know, the teachers, to help teachers identify any signs, to help others identify signs, and to help the child be able to come forward uh, if that, you know, if, if, if that kind of serious abuse is taking place, then I can't see why we wouldn't all want to have that. So uh, there's certainly something that I would uh, support, and I, I hope my colleagues in the House Assembly would as well. Well, you know, I suppose some things like this, they just naturally get lumped into some of the political controversial issues that are absolutely on the go, whether it be the move at the district to talk about pronouns and the move at the district to talk about sexual education, because those conversations very easily and very quickly, unfortunately, get derailed and go down some pretty bizarre rabbit holes. But this one has nothing to do with either of those. This is if, if someone wants to take a look at exactly what this is in the curriculum at the different grade levels, I can't understand anybody saying this is a bad idea. If we're going to be able to arm children with the understanding of risks and what they can do about it, signs they can recognize, some tips or advice with what to do next, I don't know how that's a bad idea because we know, whether it be around every digital corner or potentially in the community, this may indeed be something that can, if it helps one child per year, per grade, it's been an excellent investment. They're actually talking about total cost for full implementation of $25,000. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it literally a drop in the bucket, um, comparatively speaking, when you look at the provincial budget. And... Uh, uh, so, so yes, I, I agree with you, Patty. Why we wouldn't go down that road is, is beyond me. And, and you're right. People do kind of look at it in a much broader context, uh, context and they talk about, you know, that we're going to be teaching children about sex and all this kind of stuff. That's not the intent of this program. This is just simply to protect them against predators. Uh, and sadly, those predators in a lot, a lot of cases are in their own home. Um, and it, it, it's not political. That's one thing no, that, unfortunately, you know, we pretend some of these things are left or right. This one isn't. I've had a look at it. This has absolutely nothing to do with what political party you support, what political ideology you have, nothing to do with it at all. So this one here, hopefully people have the guts to be able to separate it from other, some of the other politically contentious issues and just do what makes a bit of sense. And this does. Correct. 
Paddy, now, switching over to one that I guess uh, that is a little bit more political. I just wanted to make this comment as well. Um, and this happens every single year without fail. Um, I, I always try my best to support everybody in my community, uh, regardless of who they are, regardless of, uh, you know, uh, faith, color, religion, uh, sexual orientation, doesn't matter to me. People are people. That's how I, that's how I look at it. And I'm sort of, of the view of live and let live. But every single year, uh, without doubt, I will get uh, a few uh, comments uh, come my way, uh, not necessarily nice comments, uh, whenever I attend the raising of the, uh, the pride flag or, or some event like that, uh, inevitably it happens. Inevitably, a couple of people will drop me as a friend uh, or make some nasty comments on social media or whatever the case might be over this. Uh, I just want to say that from my point of view, uh, you know what? We're all human. We're all one human race. And I think we should respect each other's differences, live and let live, and be respectful of one another. We all should have the right to live in safety and in dignity. And I will not, uh, and, and as I said to this one individual, um, supporting somebody who may be gay doesn't make me any less straight. It just means that I care about people, all people, and treating everybody with dignity and respect. And I would hope that everybody would take that same advice. I'm not going to tell people what to do, but I think we'd be in a much better world if we could all learn to live together, uh, respect one another, and uh, it would make for, for, like I say, a better place for us all to live. So I, I will continue to support everybody in my community, regardless of their color, regardless of their religion, regardless of their sexual orientation or how they identify. And that's how I will proceed, as I always have. And if somebody doesn't like that, and uh, therefore they sort of want to de be dismissive of me for, for doing that, well, then I guess that's their problem, not mine. Well, I mean, I get, I get blistered about this stuff uh, constantly. Yeah. Uh, the issue for me here is that, once again, like already this morning, someone wrote me about this and called it liberal values. I think if we were going to be actually honest with each other here, is across the board, regardless of your sexual orientation, your sexual ideology, uh, how you identify, what party you support, whatever that thought is, we share way more common hopes in this world than not. You know, if it's about having a job, if it's about your family, if it's about concerns with health care, if it's about what goes on with the K-12 system. I mean, th we share a lot of really common things, but, I mean, I, I just don't really even know what the problem is here. Some people are completely obsessed with it, and so be it. It's not for me to tell you what you should or should not think or what you should or should not do. But we sure get bent out of shape here. And a lot of this stuff, I believe, you know, if you have a religious issue with it, that's fine. That's your religion. That's that, And you can think about it however you see fit in your quiet moments. But the business of the culture wars and the way politicians are handling it is really betraying us all. We're not making one step further when all we have is woke this, woke that. It's a liberal issue. We're up and down the line. Because for me... If you're bleating on about woke and you're banging on about this issue, all that says, if we're honest with each other and stand back, all that says about you as a politician or you as a candidate is you have actually zero ideas. You run out of ideas. And so the easy pickings are the culture wars, even though it doesn't advance one cause 
not one iota. It's just easy. It riles people up. But I would suggest that you ask your favorite politician who goes on endlessly about that what actual ideas they have about other walks of life, jobs and taxes and the economy and the environment or whatever it is that concerns you because I guarantee you the likelihood of them actually having some new creative ideas is nil. So culture wars, easy stuff, and it's dominating politics. I mean, it is absolutely all some politicians have to offer. I don't get it. I just, honest to God, don't get it. Uh, but so many people say, that's it, you know, if we're going to want to kill leftism, whatever that is, or the woke mind virus. Yeah. But they're not really offering you much in this world. And I don't know how that makes anyone a good candidate. So, yeah, legitimate debate and discussion about age-appropriate things. Legitimate debate and discussion about what rights afford to what individuals based on what argument. Okay, let's have honest, mature, adult conversations. But this nonsense that people get on with, it's like, oh, my God. Anyway, uh, last word because I have to go. No, I agree, Patty. And, I mean, you know, from my point of view, uh, you know, I, I'm probably a little bit more to the right than to the left, to be honest with you, in, in, in a lot of my views. But when it comes to uh, when it comes to the issue, like I say, of uh, you know someone's particular religion or the color of their skin or their culture or whether they're uh, you know whether they're a member of the LGBTQ uh, community, whatever the case might be. I mean, to my mind, people are people, and everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. End the story, and it should not be a right or a left thing. And as I said, if somebody wants to say, boy, I'll never support Paul Dane again because he supports all people, well, then I guess you can move on and I'll have to, uh, I'll, I'll have to live without your support. But uh, I'll continue being me, and I guess they can p continue being them. That's the end of the story. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too, Paul. Bye-bye. Paul Lane, independent member of Mouth Pearl Southlands. Look, and I can only speak for me. I can't speak for you. I don't dare to, and I don't pretend to. I just don't have the brain power to think about those things all the time. You know, if you look at the laundry list of concerns that are out there that are actually really hurting people and things that might be able to get done that could actually make things easier or better or more profitable or safer, I'm just not so sure I've got the power to, you know, think about the culture war stuff. I don't know where it gets us. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to wrap up the show with whatever you want to talk about. And if you think that part of the conversation should include those ideological things and the cultural touchstones, we can talk about it on the show and hopefully come to some place where we can find a way to make my life a bit easier and better and healthier and safer. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Mike Dillon. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm fine. I'm just in the uh, throes of the preparation here for our fundraiser with St. Andrew's Church in St. John's. Uh, this is our 47th annual lobster takeout fundraiser, and we still have some meals available for Thursday. And I wanted to get on your, your line here this morning and, and let people know that we still had some, some takeouts available to help with our fundraising efforts here at the church. Um, before I give you the rest of the information on that, I, I haven't called open line before, but I've listened to you so often. And I got to say, thank you so much for the advocacy you provide to this province, the help you provide to people that are that are suffering or questioning things in their lives. You're just so graceful about it. And, and thank you very much, Patty. I appreciate it. And uh, as I'm quick to point out, it's not uh, and I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but so be it because that's an impossibility that I'm not going to waste much time on. 
So, mm-hmm. okay. This, uh, so the Kirk Lobster Dinner, I, I exchange notes with uh, Andrew all the time about this, so I'm glad that you finally made time to join us on the program. So what else do people need to know about an opportunity to get in on it? Right on. So uh, we can be reached here at the church at 709-726-5385. 709-726-5385. And we are providing a, a lobster takeout. We put a box together that's got a large potato salad, some coleslaw, toss salad, small bottle of wine, some homemade carrot cakes, a couple of rolls, and two freshly steamed Newfoundland lobsters that have been chilled and put into the box. So basically we're providing a takeout that uh, is a literal feast, no doubt about it. It sounds like it. Uh, What kind of fundraising are you doing? Are there any specific projects you're fundraising for? It generally goes, uh, as a church, we work with three kind of mission circles. One of them would be local with such things as things going on in our neighborhood. Our Bridges to Hope being half-handy to our downtown church here is a, a big part of what we raise money and, and spend our efforts for. Uh, we also are part of the Atlantic Missionist Society, whereby we get together with other uh, Presbyterian churches in Atlantic Canada and determine where the needs are and where we can best support them. And then through Presbyterian world sharing, we reach out to the entire world and would educate perhaps nurses in India or or various other things like that. So uh, we're really open-minded in how we approach, but it's the three circles, those that are handy, those that are kind of handy, and those that are definitely worldwide. Uh, I appreciate the good work that you and your team are doing. Uh, Mike, give the folks the details about the number to call and when the takeout opportunity is available. Thank you, sir. Yes, uh, we have... Uh, approximately 40 meals still available for Thursday evening, so it would be for pickup um, late Thursday afternoon uh, from 2 o'clock until 5 o'clock uh, at the foot of Long Hill, the former Holloway Church property. So just the parking lots at the foot of Long Hill, you proceed through there up towards the church. Um, we can, again, uh, receive your order at 709-726-5385, whereby payment can be made at that time with a credit card. And we'll book in for your two lobsters and all the salads and then uh, look forward to having it supported as well as it has been for the 47 years that we've been doing it, sir. I wish you good luck with it, Mike. So no delivery. It's all for pickup. It's all for pickup. And again, the the arrangements we made here at the church and uh, look forward to seeing everybody come down here. I appreciate your time. Good luck with it. Thank you, Pat. Have a good day, sir. You too, Mike. Bye-bye. All right, that's Mike from St. Andrew's Church. Uh, Let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. You? Very, very good. You were talking about uh, Dr. Assisted Suicide in your introduction this morning. And uh, I've been thinking about that lately. My sister died back in September. I think I told you that. And she fell and broke her pelvis. And when they operated on her, they discovered cancer in her lungs, in her ovaries, and in her liver. Now, Unfortunately, she didn't live that long. She lived uh, seven days. And uh, the doctors told me that it was because of the pelvis that she died. Now, had she lived, uh, who knows? The doctor says the pelvis would have caused an immense amount of pain and the cancers would have developed. And, you know, in that case... I could understand why people would decide on Dr. Sister's suicide. I don't know what my sister would have done, and I don't know if what I would have done. All I know is that 
whatever people decide in that situation, if they really, really were in the situation my sister was in, then I would agree with them. I don't agree with doctors or sisters who was out of person had mental problems or something like that, but only under a situation where a person would be extremely ill with no chance at all of recovery. And uh, I thank you for bringing up that topic because I know that people who decide to go that route, you know, the families have to have some guilt feelings and things like that, and those are usual. But it's a very, very difficult decision to make. And I thank you for bringing it up, Patty. Well, look, if someone has literally no hope, the prognosis is dire, they're living in unbearable pain, the opportunity for them and their family to find help through uh, dealing with a doctor, a physician, that makes sense to me. But the way that it's been utilized absolutely makes no sense. We've heard stories from the, these two women in particular in Winnipeg. They just needed some additional supports in their own home so that they could live a reasonably comfortable life. That was made available. They chose made. I mean, that can't be it. I'm a veteran who needs some additional support from Veterans Canada. I go see a counselor to be told, well, you have the option to kill yourself or, yeah. or to be killed. That's not what any of these things are for. But that's unfortunately what's happening, and we just can't have it. That's right. Can't. That's right. I, I, I really, um, I really um, feel for those people who feel that they have to die. So thanks for bringing that up again. And my sympathies to those people who are living with uh, with family members who are in extreme pain. I know that many phone you every almost every day asking for not some, some help, but just somebody to talk to. And I'm glad that you're there to help out. Thanks again, Patty. My pleasure, Brian. Take good care. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. You know, and the story that I read this morning was timely in that I just found out on Friday past that a friend of mine, a, a great old buddy of mine who we I worked with, we played a lot of sports together, and uh, his wife is now going through the process. Can you just even imagine? And she's going through it because there's no hope for her, and she is suffering mightily. But can you even imagine knowing that there's a date on the calendar when you will die? Like this? I mean, I was just blown away all weekend, worried about them and thinking about them. And But then that story this morning and the way we know that medical assistance in dying has happened in different areas is really quite troubling. And it's a big topic, and I get it. It's emotional and traumatic, but a lot of things are. Let's go to line number two. Chris, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, good, good. Really proud dad this moment. Um, yeah, uh, Inclusion Canada came to our small town of Bishop Falls and uh, present, which is a group that uh, uh, looks out to with children in, with intellectual disabilities, an advocate group, and and even adults. And uh, they came to our small town of Bishop Falls this morning and uh, presented our school of uh, Leo Burke Academy with the award. Based on what? Tell us about uh, exactly what's going on at the school. Well, uh, they take they have. A, few children there one of which one is mine uh where they try and help him out involve him in the different activities and the student does it uh, the students are uh, part of that process and they uh, yeah they really help the children out and, and it, anyway and the award was given to the school for helping out these children and, and working with these children and, and 
providing a great place to land for sure. Well, good stuff. I mean, I'm familiar a little bit with Inclusion Canada and the Newfoundland Labrador chapter. So, and yeah. it's not only about the youth living with this uh, intellectual disability, all, all sorts of supports for their family and for their classmates and for the community. So this is a big group doing important stuff. You know, we talk with Lars Avalon, uh, which is the same thing, except it's for adults with intellectual disabilities uh, last week or maybe the week before. So these supports are out there. So I would suggest that if you have someone in your family or in your social circle that might not be aware of what Inclusion Canada has to offer, you should reach out to them. They're a great organization. We really weren't sure, like, we we weren't really sure how much we've heard of him before being involved in certain programs with our son. But, uh, yeah, it was really nice. To, you heard so much bad about the school board and sometimes, right, but it's so nice, nice when the boots on the ground get recognized for the advocacy that they do, right? And there's somewhere between 15 and 20,000 individuals with intellectual disabilities right here in this province. So they've got a full plate, but I don't think they've done anything less than uh, do everything they possibly can for individuals and families when they're connected with them. So I'm really pleased for the school. What's the name of the school again, Chris? Sorry. Leo Burke Academy. Leo Burke Academy. And so the award or the prize, what is it? What do they bring you? Well, yeah, they they come and they give a you know they give out their uh, trophies and stuff like that, okay. right? And uh, yeah, so but it, it's kind of recognition too because, uh, like I said, the the school definitely goes above and beyond for you know the kids in the school and stuff like that. Even the students are uh, really good with the children too, right? Well, I'm really pleased for the school and good on them for being like that and for an inclusion Canada to recognize it. Great stuff. Perfect. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate your time. Appreciate yours. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Leo Burke Academy, good on you. So they do all sorts of stuff, whether it be help you uh, do some estate planning. Then there's uh, award programs, that you, just like you uh, heard uh, Chris talk about. There's community inclusion initiatives, which have been extremely beneficial for some people I know who have been involved with Inclusion Canada and the Newfoundland and Labrador chapter. I just got to check in on the Twitter feed. We are BOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. So I've been told by the carnivore kid that I have to educate myself on why so many people are are upset. Look, being upset is all part and parcel with dealing with especially societal policy, right? But what I think also gets lost in some of this, because the link that he sent me is something that's offered by someone who I think is highly questionable in the way they approach these issues. That's what's happened here, is we've got down to... Every single person, like for instance, if we're talking about trans, because that's that's a big part of the conversation now, isn't it? I mean, I know it, and it's a tricky one, but we'll have we'll navigate it if you're so inclined. Is now there's even some major prominent commentators, quote unquote, news organizations, when there was a mass shooting and the perpetrator was a trans person. Now all of a sudden, people are telling me that they're all terrorists. So doesn't that scream to be a problem to you? It does to me. And every single school apparently now adopting any sort of public uh, sexual education, acknowledging that people exist, is everyone's all of a sudden a groomer. Am I alone in thinking that's a problem for all of us? You know, to treat a segment of society like that? Such a minuscule percentage of the population, but now all of a sudden people want me to think of them as terrorists and groomers. Not, no more, no less. You know, they're all pedophiles. When we look at numbers, 90% percent 
90% of these perpetrators, they knew the child, right? Had long-term exposure to the child. Not random stuff. You know, 90% is a big, big number. And yes, there are different segments of society that grab headlines because they had committed atrocities, evil, crimes against children. And that's how we should think about them, is that they are criminals. If anybody from any community commits a, any type of abuse against a child, they're a criminal. Plain and simple. Regardless of their sexual orientation or their sexual ideology, those things, I think we've lumped them all into everyone in that community is a danger, an omnipresent risk to all our children. I don't think that's true. Do you? We can talk about it later. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to Marie St. Croix. Good morning, Marie. You're on the air. Uh, hi there. Hey. Uh, I was just calling in to uh, let the public know that uh, we are doing a Family Fun Day fundraiser in Babels on Saturday. So um, we are a nonprofit organization that is a child care center in Babels. And uh, each year we do a fundraiser. This year we will, do, we will be doing a Family Fun Day fundraiser. It is June 10th at 12 to 4 p.m. The admission is by donation, so there will be live entertainment, uh, all 50-50 uh, draw, raffle, wheel, bouncy castle, face painting, balloon characters, craft tables, and much, much more for all the families to come and enjoy. Uh, we are located at 48A Cemetery Lane in Babels. Um, we are on the side of uh, the Lifestyle Center in Babels, so we just wanted to uh, get that announcement out there so that people could drive up the shore and come and have some entertainment with their families. Sounds like a good uh, get-together community initiative activity. So when people are operating not-for-profits, of course, you got to get out into the community, let them know who you are, what you're doing. How did this come to be? Uh, so since I've been in this position, each year we do a fundraiser because we're not-for-profit, so there's only so much money that goes around and uh, that is provided with the parents' fees and the, um, and the government um, uh, helping out in certain areas. And uh, we do a fundraiser just to buy the extra things for the children and the child care program. Uh, this year our focus is to um, enhance the backyard play space for the children, so that's what we will do. What uh, Describe the relationship with the Kilbride to Fairland Family Resource Center Coalition Incorporated. Uh, so we are an umbrella under the um, Kilbride to Fairland Family Resource Center. They offer uh, a, a different program for um, play groups in the community throughout uh, from Kilbride right up to Fairland. They have uh, play groups and different opportunities for parents to come and stay with their children and uh, just get some socialization for the children as well. Inside the world of child care, I mean, we have heard all the stories, whether it be trouble getting a spot for your toddler, it's fine to tell me that it's $10 a day and all the rest. Now, the Southern Shore is growing. We know it to be true and growing with young families as well. Have you seen that associated uptick with the number of families looking for care inside of your, uh, inside of Bay Bulls Child Care? Oh, absolutely. And parents are always calling because we have a wait list, of course, as many child care centers do. Parents are always calling to ask when uh, a space is available, if there's anything coming up. And for us, we usually only have movement once a year when the oldest children go to kindergarten. So then we fill our spaces very quickly. We have a long wait list. Um, yeah. Are there many providers on the Southern Shore? 
Um, well, there is. Um, right now, there are two centres open up here. So we have been in existence for, I think, like 13 years. And then there's a new centre opened up here. So it's opening up more spaces for children and uh, more ECEs to become back into the workforce for those that have left. Give us the details one more time about the where the when for the, for the Family Fun Day. So it is Babel's Child Care Center, Family Fun Day fundraiser, June the 10th, 2023 at 12 to 4 p.m. And we are located at 48A Cemetery Lane in the Lifestyle Center in Babel's. Appreciate the time. Good luck with it. Thanks, Marie. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there you go. If you're up to the shore, opportunity to enjoy that bit of fun. All right, just a couple of quick notes. You know, we've seen the stories with wildfires, and it's been a fairly active wildfire season thus far here in this province as well. As of the end of May, there was 53 wildfires versus there was 18 in the same time frame a uh, year prior. Then we know that the, in Central this past weekend, some 250 professionals and volunteer firefighters took advantage of some of the 22 courses being offered by the government's fire services division. So they're talking about, you know, preparation and they're talking about sharing experiences with one fire hall to another. But then we also find out that that fifth water bomber that was damaged almost five years ago will not be repaired this year. Government seems to be content and thinks that we're going to be okay with just four of the five that are available for the wildfire season this go around. Then there's a story regarding some of the fitness tests that so I think there was a pretty significant percentage of uh, people who participated in that fitness test didn't pass. And so they are unable to be available to fight the wildfires that are ongoing and fingers crossed not too many of them this year and or severe ones like we saw last year which was a pretty dodgy situation in central so the fact that the government now you know it's been really hard to pin them down on this one particular water bomber so remember when it was first damaged based on a prior insurance claim the repair bill looked like about 10 million dollars which happened to be the deductible so they thought about selling it now they think they're going to repair it but they don't think they're going to be in a position to talk about timelines for the repairs and who's going to do the repairs and how much the repairs are going to cost until somewhere near the end of the year so that absolutely means there is only four there will only be four here in this province. I don't know if they've returned from Nova Scotia. One point last week, there was one at Happy Valley Goose, or pardon me, a five-wing goose. The other three were in Nova Scotia. I don't know if that fourth one that was in Labrador has left the region. But so interesting stories on that front. And yes, not that it's happened in our neck of the woods because it's been too damp and dreary for any wildfires to rear their ugly head uh, in the part of the province where I live. And nor was I really aware if any of these fires are large in scale and they've been deemed out of control. But 53 this year as at the end of May, and that was 18 versus the year before. So anyway, a couple quick notes there. Let's check in on the Twitter box before we run out of time. Oh, I think we're going to try to see if we can get Ken Dix. He's the pharmacist in question talking about this dose-splitting issue with uh, Ilera, I think that's the drug, and Lucentis. That's a big story. I mean, it, contravacts, it contravenes Canada's Food and Drug Act, number one, and it could indeed make a bad situation worse for the thousands of people in this province who are taking one of those injectable drugs. There are some uh, protections in place with a already pre-filled, uh, not vial, what's the word, syringe, so you'll know you're getting what you think you're getting, and the opportunity to ask your pharmacy for a pharmacy record of where the drug came from, but hopefully to speak to Ken Dix, because that story is really quite interesting. All right, we're on Twitter, we're 
VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.